Hey, this is Matt Greenberg, screenwriter of Halloween H2O. You are listening to Horror Movie Podcast, where we are dead serious about horror movies. horror movie podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies we have a bi-weekly show that's released every other friday and this is episode 145 it's another one of our frankensteinian episodes where we bring you a variety of horror reviews and topics and on horror movie podcast you get to hear in-depth horror movie reviews especially for new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy rent or avoid these movies and I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts tonight are... Dave Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh and Jay, truth or dare? <laughs> oh, no. I was hoping you wouldn't lead with that, but you did, and I love it. Um, I say, <laughs> I say, truth, bring it. Are you dead serious about horror movies? <laughs> You're damn right. <laughs> All sorts <laughs> All right. of them. So, um, yeah, absolutely. So listeners out there, we got a lot of entertaining feedback on the pig headed horror episode and a quiet place episode. Now we are going to talk about that, but we're going to save that feedback for later on in the show. So it's not like we're sweeping it under the rug awkwardly. <laughs> we'll, we'll be addressing it. Um, but right. we just wanted to head just to, to not do the same exact episode again. Yeah, because <laughs> exactly. there's enough content that we just could. We could do another pig-headed quiet place episode back to back. Yes, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, there was a lot of feedback. So also a little bit later in the show, if people want to stick around, we have our contest winner giveaways for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Get Out Blu-rays. So stick around for that. And our interview with the new editor of Fangoria. Anyways, we thought we would just hit the ground running. And so let's do this, guys. Let's move into our feature review of Marrowbone. We have come very far, enduring many hardships. But at last, we found the place where we can be safe. Okay, guys, so this film is also known as The Secret of Marrowbone, but I think um, the cool kids are calling it Marrowbone now. <laughs> Have you heard much about this? Did you guys get, I don't think you got a chance to see this yet, right? No, I hadn't even heard of this one, to be honest. I hadn't either. Okay. Okay, this is a film that was written and directed by uh, Sergio uh, Sanchez, and horror fans will definitely know his work because he was the writer on The Orphanage. So um, Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, and he's also the writer of um, The Impossible, which is not 
necessarily a horror film. It's like a nature film about that that real life tsunami. Uh, but that tsunami scene, by the way, is absolutely terrifying to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it scares it really me to is. death. But, because you know when when you hear something like that, you're you're very naive when you hear about a tsunami. You're like, well, you just swim. Yeah, right. You try to swim with it. But you don't. Then you then you see. Oh wait, it's throwing you into buildings. It's throwing you into trees. It's throwing you into cars that are floating next to you. Right. Um. You know. Then you re- Then it's it's at that point that you grasp the severity. You yeah. know, And just how incredibly awful that would be. Exactly. Yeah. So that that's a harrowing film. But but anyways, uh, yeah, the impossible is something for people to check out. Um, if you're interested in that, but I, I'm telling you, this writer has a sensitivity and he, he has a keen observation, I think, of the human condition. And I know that sounds like some some sort of critic BS, but I think there's a there's a real sensitivity um, to the way this person frames and captures characters. Now, one interesting note here, Marrowbone is rated R. And I was shocked after finished watching it. I mean, it, it, it is disturbing, but I'm like, how is that rated R? Because I'm thinking this is PG-13. I'm like, this is a perfect film that I could potentially show my wife or recommend to non-horror fans at like Halloween time. But much like The Orphanage, The Orphanage was rated R too. And you will remember, that was like rated R for scary images. And this is kind of the same thing. It's rated R for like disturbing, violent content. But I just wanted to put that out there. That's who we're talking about. And and this is one of those horror films, I'm so happy to say this, that is very well done, like artistically. In terms of its execution, I mean, you've got a technically beautiful film. The performances are right on the money. It's stand-up. Now, I will tell the horror fans up front, guys, this feels like, when, when you start watching it, I mean, it is probably 85% drama. It's, it's mostly a drama. It's a drama slash horror film. And when I was watching it, I'm like, come on, is this a horror film at all? Like, and, and there are a couple like slightly creepy moments, but man, that last 15% is rock and roll, and as Carl would say. <laughs> so um, it, it is nice. very troubling that way. So like this is, um, I'm going to say it right now, I don't want to overhype it because it has a it has a subtlety to it, kind of like um, a Pie Wacket. You know, Pie Wacket was a fine quality film. I, I think this is an even finer film, but it is a little bit. Um, it might seem a little sl- slight to the hardcore horror fan, but I just want to say, of your 2018 horror film watch list, this must be on it. You must see this before the end of the year if you're going to put together a top 10 list. This is a high priority. Um, this stars, it has Anya Taylor-Joy in it. And, you yeah. know, we all know and love her from The oh, Witch. yeah. Absolutely. It, all, it also has George Mackay, or I don't know if it's Mackay or Mackey, but he's the kid. You'd recognize him from Captain Fantastic. Not a horror film, but a great movie. Um, yeah. Yeah, he was like the eldest son in that and um, but all these all these actors are well, very fine. Charlie Heaton from Stranger Things is pretty a hot yes. name in horror right now. You know, between Anya Taylor Joy, who was in The Witch and Split, and Charlie Heaton from Stranger Things, it's like mm-hmm. kind of an all star horror cast of the moment. It, you know? it really is, and I love um, Charlie Heaton's character and his performance in this. 
It's very good. So uh, Mia Goth was in some pretty weird movies back to back. She was in uh, Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac, and she was in uh, A Cure for Wellness last year as well yes. from uh, Gore Verbinski. So really creepy movies that she's been in recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like she picked some interesting stuff, that's for sure. <laughs> but, but but guys, um I am so excited for you to see this and I'm I'm just going to I'm going to be very careful as always about just giving you the premise. I I just want to tell you up front, this has a in a fascinating take or approach to um the haunted house film. I mean, it yeah, I mean it's it's kind of like a, a haunted house type of movie. And I, I love, you guys know how I feel about like supernatural horror or things like that. And, and so we, when you see the way that this film deals with that, I was just stunned and astounded. I loved it. And, you know, I will say that, you know, once, once you understand the whole film and you look at it from a bird's eye view and you see it and you're like, oh, okay, we have elements that are familiar from here and elements from over there. So it's not like it's, a completely original type of film, but the way it's put together uh, is just extremely effective. So uh, here's a little premise for you. Basically, uh, it opens up and this family has relocated. It's a, a mother and her four children. Um, apparently, you know, we gather that the the father of the family was extremely abusive and and scary, and and basically they fled and got away. Um, from him, and they uh, changed their name. Their last name is now Marrowbone. Okay, so that's where the title of the film comes from. And so they're hiding out from him, and um, and the mother is ailing. So you have these young kids, like you know, the, the eldest, the George McKay kid, is like he's probably like seventeen or eighteen in the film. I'm guessing, but um, you know, you you've got this ailing mother who's on her way out. And then you have these kids who are on their own. And actually, I messed up the kid's age. He's about to turn 21. Forgive me. That's an important detail. He's about to turn 21. and But still, I mean, it's four kids getting ready to survive on their own. And they're always looking over their shoulder for the return of this um, horrible father. And mm. so that's the premise. And I'll just leave it at that because um, this is a movie that, I think everybody should experience and and just settle in and be patient. I mean, I know that's funny coming from me, right, guys? Because I'm Mister like Clock Watcher guy, you know. Like, but but when when the payoff is there, then then it's all worth it to me. Um, I don't know. Do you guys remember that film, The House of Sand and Fog? Um, Vaguely, yeah, with, with Jennifer yeah, Connelly, Jennifer Connelly, yes. and Ben Kingsley, right? Yes, yes. yes. Now, that's from 2003. Not a horror film, and I'm sorry to keep referencing non-horror films, but it's like a crime drama, you know, borderline thriller. But that mm-hmm. that film is very rich with story and character motivation and action. Like, when the action happens, you know, it, it happens for a reason, and it makes sense. And and this is like a, a horror version of... I mean, it's not the same story as House of Sand and Fog, but I'm just saying it's rich with story. So we actually have a great horror film here that has um, a, a truly good story. And when it's all put together, you're like, wow, that was quite a ride. 
And I tell you what I did, just to, just so you guys understand what this film meant to me. It's almost two hours. It's like an hour and 50 minutes. And last night, I ended up watching it. This is going to sound really weird. <laughs> I watched it from about 2.30 in the morning to 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> I had weird hours, but I needed to get it in before our review. <laughs> and and I, I stayed wide awake for it. I mean, I was awake for this thing, even though it is pretty slow burn. And when I went to bed, you know, I only got to go to sleep for about an hour, hour and a half. When I went to bed, I was just tossing and turning because of this movie and the way it unsettled me. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's not horrifyingly scary, but it, it is very, it's troubling. It gets under your skin. It, it will stay with you. It, it's haunting for sure. And uh, man, I just love this movie. So I'm going to give Marrowbone, no kidding, I'm giving it 8.5 out of 10. I say this is a must-see for 2018, and um, it, it's worthy of a purchase. It's the kind of movie, it's the kind of horror film that I would I would purchase just so I could have it in my library to show it to people. Like, if they wanted a horror film that wasn't super extreme, but they wanted to kind of be freaked out, it's perfect for that. So, this is a great movie. I hope everybody will see it. Are you guys sold or not? Oh, yeah. I'll check it yeah, out. Yeah, it sounds interesting. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the way you described it, it kind of reminds me of The Beguiled, to be honest, which I know that was one of your Trojan horses. So <laughs> I am curious to check this out, <laughs> compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope you do. Yeah, because this this definitely crosses into the horror realm. There's no question about it for me. But but yeah, the majority of it is is drama, though. So um, but but because it it pays off and it comes around for me, you know, I can I can be patient about that and excuse that. So it, it's well, I don't. I mean, what is the tone of the drama portion of the film? Is that also kind of upsetting and disturbing? And you know, does that mm, no tension is or <laughs> dread or anything like that? Uh, that's a great question. I'm really glad you asked that because I think we should prepare the audience. It is very, uh, for the most part, it's very pleasant. It's kind of a a period type of piece. I mean, a lot of people refer to it as a period and it is, I mean, it's set in 1969, I believe if I remember that correctly, but um, you know, it's, it seems a little old fashioned and it's kind of, it's a lot of it's very pleasant and upbeat and it's like affectionate. Like you really get attached to these kids. They care about each other and you care about them. So it's, it's in many ways, it's this beautiful little drama. It's a sweet little story. So yeah, you should be, you should, because I could just see people checking this out and be like, what is Jay talking about? This is not even a horror movie, <laughs> but, <laughs> right. but it gets there, everybody. Just trust me. So, but great question, Josh. Huh. So, so yeah, you can, um, this is on Amazon, stream it for seven bucks and it's worth every penny. So that's the review of Marrowbone. I hope people will check it out and let us know what you think about it. I, I did a, a one last little note. I did a one of those, you know, hashtag searches on Twitter just to see what other people had to say about it. And and from what I could tell, I mean, everybody who had watched this kind of had a similar um, experience where they're like, "Wow, that, that's sticking with me. That's kind of haunting. What a beautiful film. It's very well made. All those things." So, yeah. And and if you loved Anya Taylor-Joy before, I think you'll love her even more. She's very endearing in this film as well. All right, guys. I'll also mention uh, Mia Goth. I was noticing she's going to be in the upcoming Suspiria remake, which we might mention a little bit later on the show. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, see, that makes that makes perfect sense to see her in there. All right, Joshua, I think we got a, a theater release feature review here. And uh, just to make the distinction, this isn't just any old truth or dare. This is Blumhouse's truth or dare. <laughs> Let's get this party started. Tight. Carter. Truth. What are your intentions with our sweet Olivia? I needed to find someone with friends that I could trick into coming here. What the hell? The game's real. Okay, wherever you go, whatever you do, it'll find you. All right, Truth or Dare is a 2018 film. It's directed by Jeff Wadlow and written by Julian Jacobs, Michael Rice, Christopher Roach, and Jeff Wadlow. So quite a few writers here on the project. Um, yeah, you mentioned Blumhouse's Truth or Dare. That is one of the alternate names I'm seeing on the internet. In fact, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's listed as Blumhouse's Truth or Dare, which is interesting. And that's, I guess, comes from the poster. But I guess the cool kids are calling it Truth or Dare. So we'll <laughs> right. go with that yes. for now. Um, this is a terrible, terrible film. Uh, I can <laughs> I can imagine someone who was a fan of Happy Death Day enjoying it. Come on. <laughs> Easy. It's it's totally very similar. You know, it has the vibe of those post scream college based movies like uh I'll always know what you did last summer or a Urban Legends to the final cut, you know, kind of movie. And in fact, it's directed by Jeff Wadlow, who I mentioned. He is the director of Cry Wolf, which is one of those kind of post screen movies. And that film, I don't know. Did you guys see that Cry Wolf? I, I, no, I no, haven't I watched not. it yet, but I actually own it. It was like a $5. It was at every gas station for like six years. Oh, interesting. Right. I don't think you'll like it, Jake, because you don't like movies based around games. Oh, and that no. one is based on one of my favorite games to play, which is Werewolf, or a lot of people call it Mafia. Hmm. But it's essentially, you know, you're trying to figure out who the bad guys in your group are. It's almost like Clue, but without a board game. You just sit there and kind of... Uh, Mm. inspect to one another just figure out who are the who's the killer who's the hitman in mafia who's the werewolf and gotcha in werewolf and so anyway he made another movie that's slightly ridiculous based on a game and and he's done it again truth or dare is essentially a high stakes game of truth or dare run by a demon and so once you've been asked the question as i asked jay at the top of the show you're stuck in the game and you you've got to play to completion and completion for most of these people involves death. And, um, and there are, you know, different rules with regard to the truths and dares that come up along the way. And there was a part kind of the midpoint where I thought, okay, this is, this is starting to get good. I'm enjoying where this is going. Um, And it, it was, it was kind of a slog to get there for me. It just, Tonally, it just was not my cup of tea. Again, very similar to a Happy Death Day or an Urban Legends kind of film. <laughs> and um, but quick question about that: Did it have that same uh, degree of fun? Because there was a fun flavor, a fun tone to Happy Death Day. This from the trailer doesn't appear to be fun to me at all. Well, we'll talk about fun, I guess, when we get 
to the pig headed horror section of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was I was accused of not being able to just have fun and enjoy pig headed horror. <laughs> and um yeah, so for me, Happy Death Day was a chore. It was brutally disappointing and just miserable to watch. So for me, that's not necessarily fun. But like <laughs> I say, I think someone who has fun with a film like Happy Death Day, yeah, I can see them having fun with Truth or Dare. Okay. It's super goofy. And they actually reference this in the movie, which I'm, I'm glad, but the kind of main special effect in the film looks like a weird Snapchat filter. In fact, it looks like that was the, one of the main ideas that, that uh, was the genesis of this film. Like someone was using a Snapchat filter and they're like, Oh, look at my face looks creepy. When I, when I put this on, yeah. let's make a whole movie where that's the effect. And that man, I found that really just silly, goofy, off-putting. Oh, but more than that, so much. It's the it's the characters. It's you know, it's the bunch of douchey college students. <laughs> you just wonder who are these? Who is who is this made for? And it's so weird because I think I really have grown to love Blumhouse over the last few years. I always liked them more than you, but I, I mean, I, I'm so I have so much respect for the films they've put out in recent years between The Visit and Get Out and and Split, and I just feel like they're going in this really classy direction. Mm-hmm. But then you have these films like Happy Death Day and and Truth or Dare, which are worse to me even than the stuff that I thought was the bottom of the barrel for them, like mm-hmm. The Gallows or Unfriended or whatever. So yeah, it, it stars Lucy Hale, who's kind of like a a famous child actress. I don't know her work, but apparently people are really excited that she's doing horror. Of course she was in scream Four and pretty little liars, the television series for quite a while. So mm-hmm. she's done things as an adult, but I think she's still kind of best known for her work as a youth. And so if you're a Lucy Hale fan, um, it might be worth checking out. She does a, a fine job here. She does a good job. Tyler Posey is in the film who is MTV's teen wolf, which as a fan of the original two films, I could not get into the kind of MTV style of Teen Wolf, but um, I like him as an actor. I think he's a fun young actor. And there, mm-hmm. you know, there's some other passable performances here. And um, yeah, basically, anyway, these so these kids are stuck in this killer game of Truth or Dare, and they've and they've got to play it or figure out how to how to game the game, how to beat it. And so that's essentially what we have here. And just for so much of the film, for the first half of the film, it's just so contrived and silly and just like, who cares? Like, who cares about any of this? <laughs> as, and as, as, I, as I mentioned, around the halfway point, it starts to get a little bit interesting. And you think, okay, this is going in a direction that could get good, but it just never overcomes kind of the, I don't know, cheap nature of, of the film. Yeah, I have so. A, so a couple questions for you. I see that it's rated PG-13. Was it, so because of that, was it pretty mild in terms of like the horror aspects, like the kills? I mean, I, did, I didn't miss anything, but I, I think what was turning me off was kind of the teeny bopper attitudes and and vibe that i was getting so it felt very pg-13 in that way but i didn't necessarily i would have not been able to tell you that like it didn't feel 
significantly different to anything like as i've mentioned several times at this point urban legends mm-hmm. like it felt kind of in that realm to right. me okay so i i'm with you regarding that that snapchat filter like i'm just an old crotchety man and when i when, when people show me like or when i see images with that filter on like where their face is distorted it, it really irritates me and like i hate it i hate it so when i saw that in the trailer i'm like nope no i am not i am not seeing this i have no desire so why did you end up seeing it josh it i mean did it seem like your kind of movie not at all i was (laughs) never going to watch this movie but we had peter strain who is a extremely talented artist he's had some really cool honors recently um you know, check out his Instagram, I guess, if you want to see, but he's been working with JK Rowling on some big projects and just a cool guy, but he designed our horror movie podcast t-shirts or one set of them at least. Mm-hmm. And so um, he had tweeted about this. He said, I can't wait to see your bad review of this movie essentially, <laughs> you know? And so yeah. I felt because Peter has done so much for us, I felt, well, I guess I have to watch this now. I wasn't planning on it. I was going to just let this <laughs> this one go by, but um, took one for you know, the I, team. I didn't want to let Peter down. Basically, a late a late April Fool's joke by Peter. On, uh, <laughs> he says he says God. looking forward to hearing how much you guys hate Truth or Dare. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, honestly, I I considered it for that very reason. That whole take it for the team kind of mentality, just to see if if by chance there might be a gem there but like but it was between this yeah. or beirut and i'm like well i should probably see beirut so that's what i did <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah my my wife yeah. um our, our neighbor went to uh there's their sixth grader and her friend wanted to see truth or dare so um uh, my neighbor was going to take them to see it but asked my wife to go because she doesn't like horror movies so my wife went along and it was funny because I was at work and I get a text from them from my wife saying we chickened out. Um, the girls are going to go see truth or dare. We're going to go see whatever the new Amy Schumer movie, <laughs> which, and I joked around. I said, Oh, so you did decide on a horror movie, but um, <laughs> which I don't know if it is or not. I know nothing about it, but anyway, uh, I just thought it was interesting because the sixth graders really wanted to go see truth or dare. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if that, I'm guessing Josh, you're saying that's sort of the level it was aimed at, uh, to, to the, uh, to the younger teenagers or the, uh, well, 15, it's 14, I would say it's a little racy for, for the sixth graders, but yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, I, I think this is made for it's, it's, it's a film about 20 year olds with the kind of emotional, maturity of like a 15 year old basically you know right. it's just it's just so thin on character development and and they try they do a couple of things and and there's one um kind of subplot that i you know i felt like worked on an emotional level but mostly all of those emotional moments fail you know and and it's because it's so thin on anything you could possibly care about. It's also just the basic premise. It's one of those things where you hear the title and you're like, perfect. That's a, that's a horror movie. You can almost sell it just based on the title. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is that the movie that comes out of a title like this just is, can't have that much to it, or maybe it could, but 
let me put it this way. This is the worst film I've seen called Truth or Dare, and I've seen Madonna's Truth or Dare. So <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, I love it. So, so where are you in the, the rating neighborhood on this thing? What, what's that come down to? Um, you know, I initially on Letterboxd gave this a 0.5. <laughs> oh, that's, wow. that's out of five. So I guess that would be like in the one area um, out of 10. You know, I looked at my rating for Happy Death Day, and I gave that one a two out of out of five on on a letterbox. So that felt about right to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, this isn't a great film, in in my opinion. <laughs> I, I will, you know, following up with Peter Strain, he tweeted afterward. I guiltily enjoyed it, but it's utter bollocks. And so I thought that was well put. <laughs> <laughs> yes, friend of the show Sal Roma says, "Truth or dare." The ridiculous, over-the-top, evil grin killed any of the potential scares or drama, tried way too hard to show that the lead was a good person. Similar to Unfriended, a terrible film with unlikable characters, but it's fun to laugh at, and Sal gave it a 2 out of 10. Mm. So, you know, I'm I'm kind of in that range, in the 1 out of 10 range. For me, this is an avoid. I think... I don't know who this movie's for. I don't know. I don't want to know the people who the movie's for. I guess. That's awesome. I mean, listen, you know, you talk about, can you just turn your brain off and have fun with it? For me, this isn't fun, but I, but I, I know that people have, I know we have people who I respect as listeners who enjoyed themselves. Peter mentioned it was kind of a guilty pleasure for him. I know Dino, whose taste I highly respect enjoyed this movie and he liked happy death day as well. And Jody, I think gave this a three out of five on letterboxd. So hmm. interesting. It's, it's possible to, to, to walk away from this movie. Honestly, I think if you liked happy death day, truth or dare is in your wheelhouse. Wow. Now see, that leaves me in a quandary. I like that. <laughs> that, that makes me feel like I need to at least get around to it. If you're saying that, because I did appreciate a happy death day on some level, but I mean, I like happy death day. You know, I think we, we saw a lead actress who was working really hard to make something out of some terrible material. In my opinion, I feel like we see that with Lucy Hale in this film too. She's working really hard to try to make this a good movie and you know she doesn't but she's good in it and you know and a lot of the supporting cast is decent in it um violet bean is good in it tyler posey's good in it a couple of the other supporting characters uh, i think sophia ollie is her name she was good in it so mm-hmm. there's some good performances it's just that they have nothing to work with um it looks nice you know i mean it looks it's, it's shot okay but um, I think if you've seen Cry Wolf, this reminded me of that quite a bit, actually, in terms wow. of, I mean, it's the same director, same writer. So it's kind of, you know, and it's about a game. And so I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, if you liked Cry Wolf, you'll probably like this as well. I, I haven't seen it, obviously, but I think the one, the one horror cred related thing that we could give to this, I guess, um, that probably has a lot more to do with marketing than anything <laughs> with the film is that it was released on Friday the 13th. So yeah, it's got that. Well, you know, Jay, you, you mentioned Carl from Movie Podcast Weekly earlier in the show when you said mm-hmm. it, it gets rock and roll when you mentioned that about yeah. Marrowbone. I'll, I'll quote Carl here as well. This is paint by numbers. That's uh, something Carl's very fond of saying about films. And <laughs> yes. this is 
as paint by numbers as it gets. It just feels like they had this title. Let's slot in, you know, and look, I like a movie that takes its premise and runs with it. We've talked about that a lot on the show. That was really the core of my review for a quiet place. I love a film that takes its premise and comes up with every possible way to do it. Um, this just was not very interesting to me, I you know? You. And so, so it sounds like, I mean, if people were going to the theaters, cause I will say, um, Dave earlier referenced the Amy Schumer movie. I feel pretty Andy from movie podcast weekly, like that movie, but it's, it's not a horror film either. According to Andy, at least. <laughs> so maybe that instead of truth or dare. Maybe. Well, and if I was wanted to see Lucy Hale in a film, if I was Lucy Hale fan, maybe go see dude, or I think that's even on Netflix. Now, if you want to see a 2018 film with her, it's just a comedy drama, but this is not the one to check out for your Lucy Hale fix either. So gotcha. I, just not at all my cup of tea. I don't know. It just felt so silly too. There's a lot of the film is tied to kind of a mythology that takes place in Mexico. And it just, it just all feels so flat and, and cheap the way it handles that stuff. So. Gotcha. All right. How's it doing? How's it doing at the, at the box office? Cause what was one thing with uh, happy death day? Is it brought in a lot of money? Right. Um, you know, I, I know it's not doing, um, you know, I was looking at the Rotten Tomatoes page. It's got a 15% from critics and only an 18% from audiences oh, as wow. well. So that's not great. In terms of the actual box office it's making, I'm not 31, sure. 31 million so far. So it's de- it's decent, especially for its budget, yeah. I'm sure it was a. Uh, you know, Blumhouse elements in the five million or less range, yeah. most likely. And that could so. be, maybe, maybe this is what Blumhouse is doing. They're making money off these kind of movies and then turning around and using it to to finance some of the other films. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely yeah, profitable. Because yeah. according to Box Office Mojo, the production budget was three point five million. So Josh nailed that. But yeah, right. it's 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 approaching thirty two million total so far. But yeah. So, Truth or Dare 2 is in the works, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, <geez>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So, uh, not, until, not until we get Happy Death Day 2, though. That's right. Which, Priorities. Which has been slated. That, that has been announced. <laughs> Love it. So, uh, okay. So, Wolfman Josh says Truth or Dare from 2018 is a 1 out of 10. And he says, avoid it. <laughs> Great. Thanks for yep. taking one for the team, Josh. That was good of you. I appreciate it. Betcha. We're such completists on this podcast, we can't help yeah. ourselves. So, Dave, I believe you have a film to talk to us about, a little film from 1983 called Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer, correct. Um, this is one I had gotten years ago on DVD, and I think it was sent to me by the company, uh, the, like a screener. But it is billed as the first ever slasher shot on video. Mm-hmm. I haven't looked this up. I didn't do any research. But the fact that this came out in 1983 leads me to believe that it probably was the first slasher ever <laughs> shot on video. <laughs> and basic setup, you know, it, it starts 10 years in the past. Uh, a mother who is having an, uh, an affair with another man. She goes out to this farmhouse where this man lives, brings her young son along. And ends up locking the son in a closet while she goes off to have her uh, her dalliance with uh, with the lover, mm-hmm. and both are murdered. Both both are uh, you know brutalized by uh, a killer uh, carrying a sledgehammer. 
Uh, well, 10 years later, a uh, group of 20-somethings decide they're going to go on a vacation, and they go to this very same farmhouse where they're going to, you know, drink and uh, have a food fight and do all sorts of crazy things. <laughs> but little do they know that the uh, killer has never been found and is still on the loose. And a few of them find that out firsthand, as happens in most slashers. Really, more than anything, I wanted to see how... Now, this was directed by David Pryor. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see how he would overcome the limitations of that early 80s video. You know, I mean, we had a video cam back then, and the picture's always a little fuzzy. The sound is always a little bit tinny. It's never always, you know, it's never 100%. So I wanted to see how he'd overcome that and doing it within the confines of what would be a micro-budget horror film. I I saw an interview with him on the DVD, and he said, um, well, my choices were go to film school or make a movie. So I made a movie. This was his very first ever, you know, attempt to make a feature. And it was really a group of friends and they got together. He did bring in some actors, you know, he did advertise for actors and whatnot. But um, the star of the movie is his brother, Ted Pryor, uh, who also handled a lot of the um, special effects, the blood and the gore and whatnot. Uh, I have to say, overall, as to how they were, you know, with the limitations of the media and being a very micro-budget film, I was impressed. Like I said, one of the limitations is it would look like it was a single video camera. So you never got more than one camera set up. And a lot of times scenes played on for five minutes while the camera just sort of sat there watching. I guess as long as what's happening on screen is interesting, you can overcome that. Mm -hmm. But aside from that... He did get creative making this movie. You know, he had some decent gore effects. Again, like I said, his brother did that. Um, he put some slow motion in there. I'm not going to say it's the greatest slow motion. It's it's the early 80s slow motion on video where <laughs> you see that little catch at the bottom of the screen as, as it's moving along. Um, and what it really interesting is it had a synthesized score that I thought really added a lot to the film. It was It was very well done. Cool. Um, now I'm probably overselling it a little bit because it's an early eighties film. It is a standard slasher in a lot of ways and maybe even a step below a lot of the standard slashers. Um, David Pryor was not even a horror fan when he was talking about his inspirations for making this movie. He said, well, there were a lot of movies like that. Um, there was one in particular. Oh, what was it? Um, the one with Jason. So it's not like he was a horror fan <laughs> himself. Yeah. Um, he just wanted to do something, you know, he, he wanted to make a movie and this was what was big at the time. So he figured this is what he would make. Um, Ted Pryor actually does a decent job and the, and the actors playing his girlfriend is, is not bad either. So a lot of the performances are, are not great. And the setting is probably the, the weakest part of the film it it was you know it's supposed to be the inside of this farmhouse it was actually shot in uh david Pryor's uh the apartment he was renting in uh, uh was it ventura i can't remember what he said now but there was nothing on any of the walls all the walls were just white throughout this entire place mm. so it, it was a little bit dull there too so i i don't want to oversell it to people if you're not a fan of 80 slashers i don't think it's worth you know, th- th- this is not something you're going to enjoy. But if you like 80s, that that time period, um, not just slashes, but just movies from the time period. And if you remember the grainy old sort of crappy video that you had 
um, you know, back at that time, you know, home movies and whatnot. And I think we've all tried making movies with it, you know, with, with those video cameras. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you could find it interesting. Uh, I'm going to be, give it a sort of tentative score. I'm going to give it a little above average. I'll go like to a 5.5 and I'll say it's a low priority. Um, you know, rental, if you can find it, it might be available on YouTube. Like I said, this was a DVD I was sent years ago by the company. But I finally got around to watching it, and, and I, I just thought it was very interesting, a slasher movie shot on video. Yeah, when you, I don't know why, but when you were describing it, Dave, it reminded me, for some reason, of Humongous a little bit. I, I was I was picturing it of that quality for some reason. Well, it's, I think Humongous, I know you're not a big fan of Humongous. I know you didn't care as much for that movie. I liked that a little more than you did. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's... I, I, okay, I, I I see where you're going, and I'm I, you're not totally off base with that. I think you know the, you're it's along those lines, but maybe even a step below humongous. Okay, you know just just because of the limitations of of what David Pryor was dealing with, not having a lot to, at his disposal for a first movie, and what he was able to get out of it, I think is what impressed me. But certainly better than the dorm that dripped blood, for example, right? No, like, no, I'm just <laughs> no, not better than the dorm that drip. Not better than the dorm that dripped blood. Probably better than Happy Death Day. <laughs> okay, well, as long as Sledgehammer has a scene about cleaning over Christmas break, then oh, yeah. I think I think I think it, I think they do have a, a minute and a half scene like they did in uh, the dorm that dripped blood. Yeah. I think I don't think your stopwatch was working when you were timing that. People, people who didn't listen to Horror Metropolis are probably like, "What are these guys doing right now?" Um, <laughs> that was our longest battle ever, Dave. You and I fought I about that so, for, yeah, for thirty so. minutes in episode ten of uh, Horror Metropolis. <laughs> um, one last thing, and this is, you know, on a more of a, a serious note, I was curious about this on Movie Podcast Network. Something that we've started to do a little bit is is to judge a film's relative obscurity by looking on IMDb and looking at how many people have rated the film. And this Uh, one, this one only has been rated. um, It only has 353 ratings and that's, that's pretty low actually. So this is kind of an obscure slasher. So if people wanted to get their hands on something that's lesser known and obscure, this would definitely be one, right? I, I didn't go back and check, but I was wondering if we mentioned this, um, just sort of name checked it during our slashers mm. uh, episode, and I can't remember if we did or not. Good question. Greg Amortis probably did, but probably yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. Okay, Josh, you going to check out Sledgehammer? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> no, okay, well, maybe not. I mean, I mean, actually, I'm curious to see the first slasher shot on video like that's that's probably the thing that sold me more than anything else i love a good 80 slasher so yeah that would be worth checking out possibly so when you're when they're saying shot on video i just want to make sure i understand completely so we're not talking about like regular film stock we're talking about the vhs camcorder type camera about the cam the the camcorder i remember when we had one we had to unplug the VCR from the, from the base and carry it around with us on a strap and plug a camera into it. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. Straight onto uh, VHS wow. videotapes. That's Neat. what this movie was shot on. I get you. Okay. 
Yeah, there's got to be a YouTube version of this, I would think. But I see it's I on disc. So. It's on disc at Amazon. But okay. But anyways, I will say I looked up our 80 slasher episode. And this is uh, horror movie podcast episode 102, the 80 slasher film movement part two, where we covered the years 1982 and 1983. It did at least get name checked. It's on the list here. So okay, oh, good. good. Well, I'm, I'm glad we did that. Anyway, I'm glad we at least brought it up. Yeah, and hopefully we name checked uh, the Dormadrip Blood. I hope we talked about that a lot. So. I'm sure <laughs> we did. I'm so, sure we did. So, Dave, uh, there's another film that you and I got to see too. I mean, it's been a long time for me, but um, it was Yellow Brick Road from 2010. Yeah, Yellow Brick Road. Uh, this was an interesting uh, one for me. Um, again, I, I had this, and I just never got a chance to watch it. It starts with the, with a title screen saying that in 1940, uh, this entire town. Oh boy, I had it written down somewhere. I can't remember the name of the town now. And I want to say it's it was in New Hampshire. Friar. Oh, there it is, Friar, New Hampshire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the entire town, every citizen in the town, went walking down this path in the woods. Some of them were found frozen to death. Some were found mutilated, but the majority of the citizens were never seen again. So jump forward now to uh, to modern day, I guess. And you have uh, this husband wife team, uh, Teddy, ba- Teddy and Melissa, and they want to go and they're researching this along with um, I want to say it's uh, their friend Walter played by Alex Draper. They want to they're writing a book on this and, and they, they finally have gotten the file. You know, Fryer has been hiding this. They've been covering this up as long as they could. But he was actually able to access a file of information, you know, uh, that he had not gotten access to before. So they decide they're going to look for this path and they're going to walk down this path and see what happens. Uh, they bring a bunch of people with them, including a, a brother sister team who, who are uh, what are they? Uh, what is it? Cartography where they, they make maps. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to map the area because there's no map of the area. Like Rand McNally. They have an intern who's, you know, working the GPS to see where they are. And they end up bringing along this girl that they met in a movie theater. Because what happened was they they had gotten the, the coordinates for the path. And it led them to a movie theater in the middle of town. The coordinates were fake. Um, but this girl in the movie theater goes, hey, look, my grandfather owned this theater. He died last year. And, and he remembers that time. And, and, I, and I can tell you where the path is, but I want to go along. Um, and she takes him up into the projector room, and it's interesting. What what we find out, you know, the whole thing with Yellow Brick Road, there are several references to Wizard of Oz, but one of the key ones is, is that that is the movie that was in the projector. One of the reels was in the projector when they came into this town and found everybody gone. That's the movie that was playing in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Um, they never really expand on that in the film. I will say that they touch on... Wizard of Oz, but I don't, I don't, they don't really expand on any sort of influence of why. But anyway, they go out into the woods, and at some one point, they start hearing music playing in the background. And it's old 1930s, 1940s music, and sometimes it gets louder. Sometimes it gets softer, but it slowly works on them. And that's just very much a psychological horror film. And as they get deeper in, you know, down the path, some of them are saying, we should stop. Uh, obviously, Teddy saying no. We got to press on. <laughs> they and say. They say he's on down. He's on down the road. <laughs> yes, yeah, the whiz, right? 
<laughs> Sorry, Josh. Tough crowd, Josh. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, he, Josh is on mute, but he, I don't know if he he's not amused. He's like, that. he's like, well done, Jay. Well done. Anyway, yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but anyway, so uh, at the end of this movie, something happens where the group fractures, and members go off in different directions. And I think that was one of the most interesting things about the film for me was how it didn't. It, it followed all four of them sort of equally. And you have one that's going straight down the path. You know, it's like, forget it. I'm going, there is one scene of, of violence, of extreme violence in the film. Um, but mostly it's psychological. It's a psychological horror movie. And it was, for me, I thought it was rather interesting. I don't know what your take was on it, Jay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a long time for me. So I was like brushing up on, you know, my notes from before and, uh, yeah, I mean, I was intrigued. Like, the, the poster itself intrigued me, and then also the title, and I'm like, okay, either this is a, a Wizard of Oz reference, or it's like um, an Elton John reference, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. No, right, right. So I'm like, what are they doing there? And it turns out it's it's rural gothic horror fiction, right? Like, that's one thing yes. that was kind of interesting to me. And I, I'm... You know, being from West Virginia and a guy who's like grown up in the woods, so to speak, like this kind of thing is intriguing to me. And and one thing I like about movies like this, Dave, is that uh, think of how relatively simple that premise is. It's like, hey, let's make a horror film where people go, in, you know, along this road in the woods. You know, I mean, and that's pretty straightforward, but it's also kind of intriguing. Um, yeah. One thing that stood out to me when I ended up um, watching this before, I think I probably saw it around like 2011 or something, like a year or so after it was out. Um, I, the trivia, supposedly, um, this cast and crew, when they were doing this, filming this, they had nightmares starting the second week of filming. They were like, they were all having these really vivid and strong nightmares, which I think is intriguing. I wonder what that's yeah. all about. Right. And um but uh, I didn't know that. But yeah, I mean, I think where where it ends up going like I think that's what ends up dis- disappointing me because I'm like, you know, it's one of those movies where it ends and you're like, uh, okay. Like, well, you know what? It's funny because I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, geez, I don't know if that really worked for me. Uh, right. <laughs> but then what I what I thought of is somebody who probably would have loved that ending. Mhm. Stanley Kubrick because this movie to me is almost if I were to compare it and I'm not saying it's the quality of either of these films mm-hmm. but if I were to compare it I would say it is the Blair Witch Project meets The Shining interesting I said I see where you're going with that I, I see what you're saying yeah I mean it, it it would have that a little bit I mean people shouldn't expect you know, no, the don't shining. expect either one of those. Don't expect either one of those movies from Yellow Brick Road because you're not going to get either one of them. Right. But the the ending is very, it's very. It's, it, you could see that that ending being a scene in The Shining. Sure. Yeah, I agree with that. And and in fact, um, like it, it's the kind of movie I think this is fair to say, David. And tell me if you you don't think I should say, but I, I think I think that if you view this film, you should be, um be able to accept an ending that doesn't necessarily like seem to reflect, you know, it, it doesn't make uh, on one level. It's like, okay, I guess that makes sense with this film. But on another level, it's almost like somebody pulled a random ending out of a bag 
uh-huh. out of a hat and stuck it on this movie. And it's it, like it got that feeling. That's what I felt when it was <laughs> over. I said, "Wait a second, it's done." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, it's, I had the same reaction as you did. Where did that um, come from? Yeah, to, to the ending, and, and it's. But then, like I said, as I was thinking about it, I said, "Wow, that that's something." Stanley Kubrick would have liked that ending. He probably would have smiled at that ending, and and mm-hmm. and um, and I th- and that that sort of intrigued me in a way to the point that I wouldn't mind going back and watching it again um, just to see if there's anything along, maybe I missed something that, mm-hmm. that, that tied into that. Or I, I had to think it was more than just the music playing in the background, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's, but like I said, there are, there are things about it that I, that I did, I did really like I, I and I thought the performances were very good. I really liked all of the uh, the actors in this film, and you do have a sort of variety of them. I, maybe not all of them, um, but I did like I liked the main characters definitely. I thought that they were really good, and the brother sister uh, team, the cartographers, they were very good. Especially um, who was it, Clark Freeman, mm-hmm. who played Daryl, you know, the brother. Yeah, I thought he was very good in the movie as well. Um, and I also thought it was kind of interesting how you start to realize something's a little off with the GPS, because as they're walking down this little path in New Hampshire, she looks at the GPS and it says that they're in the middle of Guam. <laughs> and then they start having a running joke with that. Like, uh, like someone asked like a, a couple scenes later, Hey, intern, where are we now? And she looks, she goes, we're about uh, 10 miles outside Melbourne, Australia, you know, things like that. Cause it just keeps <laughs> right. messing with the GPS which is your first idea. And then when, when you find out with the map, when they're making the map that when they're looking forward, things are fine, but when they're looking back, nothing's making sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I thought I liked it. I liked how they were, were building on that. And again, they, there's not much to the film. And you know, it's just people in the woods. Um, I see, I saw some people commenting on this, that it was a lot like Blair Witch because they didn't think anything happened. Yeah, <laughs> but I thought it was enough going on to at least keep me interesting, and I mean, I was a fan of the Blair Witch Project as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a mystery, it's mysterious. It 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 has a little, it has some definite supernatural type of bizarre um, overtones, and I think my favorite aspect of it, honestly, is just it seems like it's riffing on um, the Lost Colony of Roanoke Island. That that mm. which was a a true. A, a historical thing that happened those people that disappeared and they had no idea what happened to them or where they went i mean i think that's kind of cool to have a you know a horror flick that's you know at least echoes those events and history right because that's mm-hmm. that's a creepy little mystery if, if listeners out there if you're not familiar with that i'm sure you are you should look it up it's pretty crazy but um yeah but i mean i, I that's something that i liked about this but Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always wanted, and and not to exploit whatever happened to those people, and maybe nothing bad happened to the Roanoke Island people, but I've always wanted a horror film where they kind of answer that, but in a very disturbing, right. troubling way. I've always wanted something well, like that. I think the most recent season of um, American Horror Story is it's called Roanoke, so oh, that okay. might be your answer. Nice. There we go. Cool. Very cool. Um, and and one thing I did want to say, I did I did compare this to Blair Witch, but this is not found footage. This is a narrative film. Mm-hmm. This you know this is not not in any ways uh, even uh, approached as a found footage movie. Right now, did you guys um, on Twitter? I mean, maybe this has been something that's been around and people have seen this for years. 
But recently, I, I saw that whole United States of Horror where they showed all the states and then what horror film, like they'd pick one horror film that was shot in that state or took place in that state or whatever. Did you guys see that on Twitter? Yeah, somebody sent something out. A couple out people saying, posted yeah. those this week, yeah. yeah, yeah I, in fact, well, we posted yeah. one this week. Yeah, I thought, <laughs> uh, that's what I was wondering. I'm like, what did we retweet that or post it or something? Anyways. Well, someone had posted a map of of the United States of Horror, and it just had one movie per state listed. Yes. And then, the then we posted uh, a tweet that just said, what classic horror films were filmed near you? Neat. And um, people responded to that a lot, and it was cool. That was a that was a lot of fun hearing what was mm. had been filmed by people's homes. The the re the reason I brought up that very random little thing right there was because like um, this film Yellow Brick Road was filmed in um, Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, and I'm like, wow! Uh, it, it just occurred to me there probably aren't that many f- horror films. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like there aren't that many horror films that would be shot in New Hampshire. So I wonder. What film was on that map for New Hampshire if it was yeah. Yellow Brick yeah, Road? That would be interesting. I mean, this one was shot in like near the Canadian border. Mm-hmm. You know, this this was uh uh like deep in the woods in New Hampshire. Yeah. I have to know where New Hampshire is on the map in order to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's up in the you know, in the New England states. It's yeah up there. Yeah, I need that. <laughs> okay, good job. Good job. <laughs> I'm not very good with my East Coast geography. Okay, there it is, New Hampshire. So New Hampshire on this map is You're awesome, Josh. Yellow Brick Road. No way. Yeah. Boom. Jay of the there Dead. You go. Anyway, I just thought <laughs> it, it's gotta be. I'm like, how many horror films have been filmed there? I mean, maybe that's the one. So anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting. Last last thing. Well, go ahead, Dave. I'm sorry if you haven't rated no, it no, yet. Absolutely. But, no, go ahead. Um go ahead. Well, this was a little bit of a tangent riffing off of Yellow Brick Road. So um, if you have a rating, I'd love to hear your rating real yeah, quick. I would give this a 6.5, and I'd say it's a rental, um, you know, worth worth checking out. Uh, again, I don't think – I think more people – not more people, but I think people – some people are going to absolutely hate the ending. I really do. Yes. And I don't know that I love it. I'll be honest. Even though I've said it's very – you know, Kubrick would probably love it. I don't know that I love it. I, I, I still don't. It could still just be sort of a cop out that I'm looking, you know, from from my standpoint too. But I actually do am interested to see it again um, mm-hmm. and see if anything sort of uh, makes sense based on what happened before. But, sure. Uh, yeah. So, I, and I'd say it's a it's a rental. Yeah, and when when I saw it back in the day, I I think I'm pretty sure I gave it like a five point five, and it's like a rental for me too. But it's you know not a super high prior, priority, but get to it. Um, I'm looking at um, mm-hmm. a list of films shot in New Hampshire. Okay. Tell me, is Yellow Brick Road better or worse than The Skulls? Did you see that? The I, Joshua Jackson, Paul Walker, Secret Society I film? I love The Skulls. I love that movie. You do? <laughs> I, 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 I honestly do, but I don't necessarily consider that horror per se. Okay, it's more of a thriller for you? Yeah. Okay, what about Thinner? I know you like that movie. Mmm. Yeah, I mean, well, since it's Stephen King, boy, I'm torn there, huh? Like, I mean, yeah, I'd probably have to go with Thinner over this. Okay, those are the three that I would consider horror that were shot in uh, Nice in New Hampshire. Also, Jumanji was shot there, though. That's a pretty big film. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
mystery team donald glover's debut film was shot in new hampshire as well neat there you go so here here's my my tangent i'm just if i had seen this movie like this came out in 2010 and i'm an old man so i was in high school in like you know the early 90s if this had come out like in the early 90s when i was in high school and i learned about um, you know how there's like that urban legend, and I don't know if it is an urban legend. I honestly don't know the truth of this, but um, you know how in the Wizard of Oz they say that like there, you know, uh, uh, some somebody a munchkin or some personnel like like they they hanged themselves, and you could see it in the they, background uh, like that. They really, eventually, they eventually did debunk that. It turned out to be uh, one of they had all these birds running around on the set. Yeah, at least from what I read. Right. I, I saw somewhere that it was like, I don't know, a flamingo or some sort of bird. Right. There is a bird. Like, there, yeah. I mean, I studied that like in, I mean, you can't even believe how much time I spent scouring <laughs> the screen and the forest wow. scenes for that. Because when, when I first learned about that, when I first heard that it re it creeped me out on a very deep level that, that yeah. you know, that they would actually yeah. capture accidentally this death. And the reason I thought that I couldn't find it anywhere for a long time was that they actually, you know, edited that out and, you know, in the newer versions of it. But anyways, I'm sure it's probably just urban legend. But if I had seen that, yeah, seen this movie back then, Yellow Brick Road, when I was already creeped out by The Wizard of Oz in the first place, <laughs> then, then it, it might have affected me differently. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I'm listening to too much Pink Floyd, Jeff. I know. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you. I know. Side of the moon. <laughs> All right. Well, th well. Thanks for uh, reviewing those, Dave. I really appreciate it, and it was fun yeah. to hear about those yeah, movies. Definitely. Okay, we've been talking about our ratings and the things that we fight over and and such, and I, I think it's really hilarious. Well. I've got a little surprise, and I hope the listeners find this interesting, um, as interesting as we do. I mean, it's fascinating for us, but uh, listener Trey Whetstone, he did the greatest thing for us, which is just so cool. He, he went through, he said he had some time. Well, I'll read what he wrote. He said, I wasn't sure if there was a listing out there of the movies reviewed on Horror Movie Podcast. So when I had some time, I decided to create one. I have attached it in this email, and it includes the name, year of release, the episode numbers that it was reviewed in, and the rating and recommendation from each host and or guest for every film reviewed on the podcast. And I would like to share this with the HMP community in case they want to reference the episode or, or a movie or anything like that, but I wasn't sure how to go about it. And so I thought I would at least send it to you guys first. Just consider it my gift to you guys for all the great content you've made throughout the years. So, first of all, like, isn't that amazing that Trey that did is, that? That is incredible. That's a lot of patience and a lot of time. I bet to, yeah. to put that together. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I might, I might mention Trey a little bit later when we're doing our a Quiet Place kind of recap. But I, I did notice this week when kind of interacting with Trey, he is engaged currently. And I just want to say, Trey, when you're married, you're not going to be doing this kind of stuff anymore. So let's <laughs> let's get it all out of your system now. <laughs> that's, that's so excellent, true. That's an excellent point. A excellent point. <laughs> but, but seriously, I mean, I've tried to do things like this. I mean, I have been supposed to do this thing like on so many occasions. I mean, it's not even funny. And um, but 
I mean, it's a it's a remarkable amount of work to do this. So so he did this back in. He sent that to us on uh, March thirteenth. Okay, so this is back in March, and so um, you know that that would be from the beginning of our episodes, episode one, up until March. So that's what these stats are for. So here we go. You got you guys ready to hear some stats? Let's do this. This is sure. really fun. Cool. Yeah, Trey put together some highlights for us, and then what we can do since since he went through so much work and trouble to do this, I'm gonna I'm gonna upload this where you can like kind of click on a link and view download the Excel document so you could see the the lists and everything. And and I hope that's satisfactory for Trey and for everybody else. I think I'm not uh, like crazy tech savvy, but I think that would be a way to share it with everybody. So anyway, he says overall number of films rated okay how many what do you guys guess on that do you want to do you want to guess you know, well we've done 145 episodes counting this episode this was i guess a month ago so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a few less than that we do review i'm guessing at least a minimum of or let's say an average of six movies per episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause I think, I think we'd probably do a minimum have done a minimum of like two and then probably most of them I'm guessing are like in the six range. Yeah. So let's do six times 140. <laughs> I'm going to guess 840 movies. Wow. That was very interesting. I mean, that was very smart the way you went about that, oh. but but apparently the the number is 558. So oh wow, 558. Um, it's because well, we're long winded sometimes. I think that's what maybe I we, re- that's it, yeah. we review. Let's do a little reverse math. And 558 divided by 140 <laughs> means that our listeners are getting an average of 3.9 movie review movie reviews per episode. So there you go. Yeah, right. yeah. I hope they feel like that's enough. Now uh, he said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, done. I'm just messing list. I'm just messing. Um, number of movies given a perfect score by one or more reviewer. So, um, I, and I assume that's a ten out of ten, right? So, so, yeah. so, what what do you guys think the number of movies would be that were given a ten by at least one reviewer or more? In all at this least time? one or at least two. It, it says by one. Or more, so yeah, at least okay. one reviewer got to give it ten. How many? So of the of the five fifty eight, what is the percentage that ever that uh, somebody gave it a perfect score? Or just a number? It doesn't have to be a percentage. I'm gonna guess thirty. I'm gonna guess thirty movies. Oh, nice. What do you got, Dave? Any guessing? Uh, thirty one. No, no way. This isn't Price is Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I'll go forty. Okay. Yeah, it's thirty four. So thirty four movies. Oh have been given a 10 on this show. And he's broken it down. The number of 10s given by a regular host. Who do you think of the three of us, who is the most generous with the 10s? Dave, who I do you think it's me? I would, <laughs> I think, well, I think it might, I was going to say Jay. Okay. Well, um, no, I think it's me. Yes, you are okay, correct. Josh, sure. you are correct. Um, Josh has given 18 10s. Wow. And I have given 12. So I was second place. And and Doctor Shock has given eleven, so Doc Shock is the mean one on this show. Yes, just kidding. Playing <laughs> Price Price's right rules but, with his tens <laughs> by one by one. That's right. Now now here's where it gets really interesting, and I bet you you guys, I believe in you guys so much. And listeners, the I, I mean, I'm putting them on the spot right now, so we got to cut them some slack. But I bet you can get this. Which movies 
and there are four of them. There are four movies that have unanimous perfect scores. That means that all three of us gave them tens, and there are only four of these such movies. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Well, I'm going to guess Jaws. Yes, that's one. Yeah. Yep. Correct. I'm going to guess um, The Thing. Yes. Okay. Nice. I'll let Dave pick a couple. Oh, uh, yeah. After you take Jaws and The Thing. I don't know. I'm trying to think here. Um, what other movie? Um, mm. oh, was The Shining? Yes. That's, that's okay. three. And then All what's right. number four? There's number one more left. Oh, my goodness. I'm kind of surprised wow. there's only four, to be honest. I know, right? I But, you know, Dave. So I'm trying to go. I'm going off my list here. Dave's being mean. Um, let's see. <laughs> yeah, right? it was definitely you, Jay. <laughs> oh, no, I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. There are there are Halloween fans out there seething right now. Saying, oh, so it's, is it Halloween? No, but they're no, saying, it's not. They're saying it should go. be Halloween. But uh, Jay screwed yeah, that up. Seven point five. Oh, Jay! <laughs> Hell's the matter with you? I don't know. Um, I don't, there are no okay. pig heads uh, it's in not, It's not Texas Chainsaw, right? No, we but reviewed that. Okay. No, we never did. You're right. And we, never we did do that one. We had better. I'm actually just trying to go down my list of movies from that are on my on my list here. Then I'm trying to think what what would uh, what ones we reviewed because I only give a ten to movies that are. Well, let me masterpieces. I'm going to guess. Well, I wasn't on for Poltergeist, so I don't think that counts. Mm -mm. Okay. Nope. Nope. Um, I don't think you guys would have gone for Scream as much as I did. Nope. It's old school. I'll give you a hint. It's it's pretty old school, but it's, you know. Um, Well, let's, did we ever do, we haven't done all the Romero films. Frankenstein? Yes. Oh, you know, that's. Oh, well, I was, was going to say Night of the Living Dead. Boom, oh. Frankenstein. Good job. Because I remember we did the verses, the Frankenstein verses. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. It should have been five, Nosferatu, but never mind. <laughs> so And Halloween. <laughs> and Halloween should have been six. You're right. Right, right. Okay, now he says uh, the same number of movies with our release year of 2013, which is 20, have been reviewed for the show. As the number of movies with release years prior to 1970, there are 20 of those. So, so we've reviewed 20 films from 2013, and then of all the films earlier than 1970, 20 of those. <laughs> that, oh, wow. That's a neat stat, but yeah, we're right, we, we might have a little catching up to do in that regard. Yeah, so we we skew more modern. And don't worry if listeners, if you're bored with this, um, uh, we love it. But if you're bored with it, we're almost done here. The numbers of reviews for each full year that the podcast has existed. Okay, so um, do you guys uh, do you guys want to take a guess? So you know, we we launched in 2013, right? Um, well, actually, this goes back even farther. Do you guys have a guess on what the our most um, the year that we have reviewed the most films from? I'm gonna guess 2017 or 2016. Very, uh, um, very good, very good. Okay, so it was actually um, it was actually 20 uh, 2014, and that okay. was f- 58 films. And then um, 2015, we did 42. 2016, we did 55. And 2017, we did 54. 
And then, and then by decades, those are new releases. That's crazy. Fifty-four new releases. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so yeah, I'm feeling good about that. Now, um, now by decades, this is kind of interesting to me. Um, in the 1970s, we've reviewed 39 films. In the mm-hmm. 1980s, we've reviewed 83 films. In the 90s, this is very telling, guys, about the 90s. 31 films. In in the two thousands, like like in the aughts, the first decade only, ninety three films, and so uh, the total so far from the two thousand tens, and this is pretty cool, from the twenty tens is two hundred and ninety two. Holy wow. cow! So Trey, really bringing on the new releases there. Yeah, we're trying, we're trying. But Trey, thank you for taking the time to do that to us. That meant a lot to me. I really awesome, Trey. Thank loved you. it. That really is. Yeah. Thank you for that. So that's, uh, you stumped us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. And so we'll have that um, spreadsheet there linked in the show notes so you can pull it up in an Excel document and view Trey's excellent work. All right, guys. It'd be cool. As long as Trey's done that much work for us, it would be cool to continue to track that as we go. Now that, He's done that many years of work for us, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's a remarkable amount of work. Keep that running total if we can. If we can keep up with it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because right. we got two. We got two podcasts to add to it, and that's starting to seem <laughs> like we only have two more pod. Well, because he did that back in March. Yeah, that was right. mid March. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. Cool. So. So now we're um, we're here uh, at one of my favorite segments on this show, and that is Screaming Online. Okay, The Chase. Uh, this came out in the United States in 2018. In Korea, this was a 2017 film. It is a South Korean film. It is directed by Kim hong Seon and written by Kim hong Seon as well as Lee Young-jong. And this is a really fun film. This is... Now, I don't know. Jay, you'd probably call this one a thriller. It's difficult for these Korean films because their tone is so different from the, the tone of American movies yeah. with, with so many of them. Of course, there's the really hardcore stuff. Like I saw the devil, but a lot of these movies, you can have something like the whaling or, and then compare that to films. We might call a thriller, like uh, memories of murder, but then something that's, Technically, ultimately, kind of a, just a drama like Mother, but still, they all to me feel like they're on the horror spectrum because of the dread and suspense and just the weird vibe you get when you're watching it. It has the, this kind of uncanny uh, nature to it. This one, The Chase, as it's called the, in English speaking countries, or at least in the United States, um, it's got a lot of comedy. It definitely could be considered a thriller. But basically what you have here is kind of like grumpy old men meets Sherlock. You have these wow. two old guys who are <laughs> curmudgeonly, but they decide to take on this case to find a serial killer together. And so it's a lot of fun. It's so much fun, actually. And it's the kind of thing that I could actually see this being a television series. These guys would be great uh, as kind of like a buddy cop detective show 
But basically what you have here is uh, there was there's a, a series of killings and they appear to be accidents or suicides but a detective realizes that these are it follows a very similar pattern to a series of murders that had occurred 30 years prior. And so he believes this is the work of a serial killer. And he kind of teams up with this curmudgeonly landlord who owns the building where a couple of these murders has taken place and is maybe himself even kind of the prime suspect if the police were to dig into it just because of his proximity and access and reputation. (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, the two of these guys together go on the hunt for the serial killer. And it was a lot of fun. It was, it was a really fun movie. I loved it. It's one of my favorite, you know, how much I love these Korean films. South Korea to me is making the most Mm -hmm. enjoyable horror and thriller movies that I've seen in the last several years. And I agree in action too. They've done some really great action movies as well. Really enjoy it. So um, yeah, the chase, it stars these older gentlemen who I'm sure are well-known South Korean actors. For me, this is the first time I'd seen either of them, but they have great performances here and it really is kind of um, an investigation for the most part. And it does get, there's some scenes of brutal violence when we see kind of uh, the killer at work, but it, it's pretty tame probably for a horror fan standard. Although um, there's definitely at least one scene that's pretty disgustingly gory. And the whole thing is just kind of creepy and um, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So that's, that's the chase. And it's one I'd definitely recommend people check out. I was looking everywhere for this it was so hard to find even on imdb i couldn't find it it was really frustrating um i had found it a couple times and then you know like closed the window and then i couldn't find it again because it's not its original title and it hasn't had a very wide release in the united states but it is on netflix so (laughs) that's why it's currently streaming online or screaming online here um which is so weird because i was looking all over for the blu-ray i'd you know read these reviews where it had been released in theaters in Australia and I could not find anything. I'm like looking for an Australian import so I can see if I can get a hold of it. And then all of a sudden, wait, this is streaming on Netflix. And yeah, so I was very pleased about that. So, so if you mention this, I'm sorry, how did you even find out about this film in order to want to see it? I'm just such a huge fan of Korean horror. I follow several um, review sites that review the latest Korean horror films. And then I'm, I'm just making my watch list of things I eventually want to see when it makes its way to the United States. And a lot of them actually, you know, Netflix is pretty good about them. There's a kind of a mystery thriller horror film called forgotten that has been dubbed a Netflix original. Of course, it's not original to Netflix, but um, they acquired it. That's currently on Netflix. I, you know, when the Wailing and Train to Busan were really hard to get and had just come out, those were kind of immediately on Netflix. So there's somebody is doing a direct pipeline from the Korean horror world to Netflix. And I'm glad that's happening because otherwise I could not find anywhere to screen this movie. And then it just all of a sudden popped up on Netflix. So there it was. Very excited. There it was. So um, it, something you guys mentioned was just talking about how effective um, – se- you know, the Korean horror has been for South Korea recently. And I, I wonder if that's just 
been because of the scary situation there with their neighbor and with the unrest and all that stuff. You know how horror That's is bred. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I just wonder because it's been very tense and scary. And I mean, they they've those poor people have been through some very tough stuff. And so I, I just wonder if that's yeah. influencing their their horror cinema. I don't know. I mean, that's those threats have been around for generations. There, three generations, if I'm not mistaken, at least, right? So, right. Um, but yeah, maybe it just took that enough time for the kids who grew up under the, that regime to kind of mature into filmmakers and mm-hmm. and deal with some of those fears. But man, they have so many great really like they do a lot of movies about serial killers that even more than their straight ahead horror, you know, stuff like the whaling or thirst, they have a ton of movies about serial killers. And I, I don't know why that is, but, mm. um, and for, so for me, I usually kind of cross that line and, and I'm okay calling those horror films, but man, yeah, I don't know why that seems to be an obsession. Memoir of a murder is one that I mentioned last year on my list and memories of murder is an incredible, um, serial killer film that's just one of the best films ever made in that subgenre as far as I'm concerned. So which one is one of the best? I was writing down um memoir Memories of, a, of Murder. Memories of Murder. There's also Memoir of a Murderer, which is also great fun was on my list from last year. But um yeah. yeah. Gotcha. M- Memories of Murder. It's more of a, a little bit more of a slow burn than the others I've mentioned, Jay, just as a warning, but okay. for you, but um <laughs> fantastic. Excellent. Okay, so that's the chase. And so is it is it easy enough like if if they're in the United States and they want to pull it up on Netflix, how did you, you just search for the chase yeah. on Netflix and it yeah. comes right up? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, just make it sure. Or even I think I think how I actually accidentally found it was I had searched um Korean on Netflix is I think is what actually what I searched and it pulled up all of the Korean films that they had. If I'm not mistaken, um, let me just double check that as as we're talking. Yeah, cool. yeah, that's what I did. Is I searched Korean and it pulled up a bunch of Korean films. Excellent. There. So neat. Yeah. Okay, so that's the chase. And and what do you rate that one, Josh? Um, I'm you know this is just very much in my wheelhouse. It's the my kind of movie, and so for me, this is in the nine range, and I would say stream it. Wow. Okay. Nice. But yeah, if if you go on Netflix, they have Memoir of a Murder, which they didn't have last year when it was on my list. Absolutely, I recommend people watch that. The Wailing, if you haven't seen The Wailing, that's probably the, my number one recommendation. They have so Trained Busan. That's probably my number two recommendation. I mean, they have some really fantastic Korean horror films right now on Netflix, at least in the United States. So, yeah, I've been thinking about the whaling a lot lately, and I've been wanting mm-hmm. to revisit that again. I mean, that oh is my gosh, so, so good. good. <laughs> I mean, I bought the Blu-ray the day it came out, but um, mm-hmm. a mother is also on Netflix, which is more of a drama thriller, but. And also in the drama thriller area, Old Boy, if you haven't seen that. But, man, there's so much great Korean cinema on Netflix. So, mm-hmm. okay. check it out. All right. At this point in episode 145 of Horror Movie Podcast, let's move into our collector's crypt. You guys, I'm super excited about the book that I'm going to talk about tonight. This is not going to do anything to refresh my reputation with people that think I'm too snooty because this is in fact a book of horror poetry, but it's so awesome. Awesome. It's called, I am not your final girl. I've mentioned it on the show before. 
but had never actually reviewed it. And this is kind of the perfect opportunity for the collector's crypt. It's written by Claire C. Holland. And what Claire has done, who she was one of our jurors for the uh, 2017 Horror Cinema Awards. And what she's done here is taken different women of horror and written a poem about them. And so there are different sections. There is assault, there's possession, destruction, transformation. And then under each of those kind of chapter headings, you have a list of well-known horror names that you'll recognize. If you flip through the book, we've got um, Sarah from The Descent or Thomason from The Witch or India from Stoker. And I'm literally just flipping through it as I look. Amber from Green Room, Carrie from Carrie. And she's just taken these women who have inspired her and written cool poetry about them, you know, and I probably am not the person to do a reading of this book. I considered it like, should I just read one of these? But it's, it, you know, and I, you, if you're a guy, this is still worth getting and reading. It's beautiful. I mean, I, I think for any horror fan, this is just a really exciting, you know, a horror fan who's cool with poetry. I think this is a really exciting <laughs> collection here and i think if i was a young horror fan especially a young female horror fan this would be a really cool reference guide of just films i wanted to watch you know you can flip through this book the first one is rosemary from rosemary's baby watch that movie and then read this poem and it's just kind of cool you know you're you're getting this whole breadth of the female horror experience and then at least one woman's attempt to kind of get in the mind or you know, even, you know, her own thoughts about those characters and what they've meant to her. I'm going to just read if I could a little bit from Claire's introduction here. Cause I think it's so cool. Nice. She says, um, I grew up loving horror movies and I've always felt drawn to the final girls in these movies. The girls who fought tooth and nail to survive until the end. I've often looked to these women for courage, but never more so than now. I wrote a whole book trying to channel that fight into something I could use for myself. These are not all final girls in the strictest sense. The term whore heroine is become is coming into vogue, and it seems more appropriate since things don't always end well for a strong, angry woman. Not all the women in this book are survivors, much as I wish they were. They're final girls in my heart, though, and I hold them closest. They are the women I feel raging inside me, the women whose pain and fury help me deal with my own darkest moments. They show me I can be stronger. They show me that I'm not alone. I cherish them for going down fighting and for taking a piece of their oppressors as they go. And I think as horror fans, male or female, it's kind of one of the things we love about horror movies, you know, and, and we, we, I think as horror fans, get a lot emotionally out of these films and we've spent a lot of time on this podcast kind of trying to figure out what exactly it is and why we respond to the genre and the way we do. And I just, I feel like Claire's put it so beautifully here and, and really you can go through the women in these films from the eyes of my mother to we are what we are to the craft or the brood and just kind of get additional insight into those characters and the themes that these films are dealing with. So th- the packaging's pretty cool as well it's got some cool artwork and it has kind of that disheveled look of an old horror book or vhs tape where it's got the horror sticker on it and it looks worn and it's got you know some degradation of the cover and it actually it's interesting 
I don't know if I just got lucky, but I love this element. It's got like a little piece of extra paper kind of glued to the spine of the book, like almost like this was printed on a second or something. I, I really, I don't know. I really like the presentation here. So neat. I'm recommending this to people. And I talked to Claire about this online. She's going to let us donate one of these books to our listenership. So we're going to give that away as a, as a prize here on the show today. That's so nice. So, I'm going to put out a tweet about this book. I am not your final girl. The night she fought back. I'll I'll tweet that out on the HMP Twitter account. And everyone who retweets that tweet um, will be in a drawing to win Claire's book. We'll do the drawing on the very next episode of horror movie podcast. And then Claire will just send that to you directly. So yeah, you won't have to wait around for us to send it to you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Thank you, Claire. I mean, that's amazing. Really appreciate yeah. that. That's awesome. Wow, that's it's really cool. cool. Yeah, I was I was thinking about reading some, but I just I don't know. I don't feel like probably not the person to do it. But what if we what it since since it was written by a lady and it's it's about a lady's perspective? What if we had a somebody in the audience record a a reading of it? Uh, do you think we could do that and then yeah, play, play that? That'd be cool. So one of yeah, our horror lady fans out there, like um, if you're a horror fan lady, you know, you know what I, th- although, as I just said, this book is for everyone. Mm-hmm. Let's make the drawing only available to women. And then whoever wins, that's part of your um, lot is you, you need to read <laughs> your favorite poem to us, record it and send it to us. We'll play it on the show. I love it. Okay. You got it. So sorry, fellas, you should buy one too. Yes. But um, <laughs> only the ladies are eligible to win this book. Yeah, you got it. Contest. Perfect. Before we close the door on the collector's crypt this week, I did want to share something very cool with our listeners. Some of you will have heard about the triumphant return of the classic horror magazine, Fangoria. And this is a magazine that has gone through a lot of different regimes, different leadership and ownership. And unfortunately, they had to shutter their doors a few years ago. Well, a company called Cinestate has since purchased the rights to Fangoria. They hired Phil Noble Jr. to come in and be the editor. They are coming back with a vengeance. And people are pretty excited about this news. Now, I'm personally not a Fangoria super fan. I did read the magazine, but my experience was I read it while I worked at a video store and it was always on the rack at the video store. And so when traffic was low in the business, I'd grab a copy of Fangoria and thumb through it. And I always enjoyed that, but you know, I know that there are a lot of more hardcore readers in our audience. And so I wanted to ask the right question. So I contacted our good friend of the show, Joel Robertson, who is the host of retro movie geek. And he does universal monsters cast with Dave and myself. And he is a Fango super fan. And so he gave, us some really great questions super nerdy questions that we could ask that were probably along the lines of what other super fans would want to know about with the return of Fangoria so thank you to Joel for providing us with those questions it was a really fun discussion and I hope you all enjoy this interview with the editor of the brand new version of Fangoria Okay, and at this point in the show, we are joined by Phil Nobile Jr., who is the editor-in-chief and creative director at Fangoria. Phil, welcome to Horror Movie Podcast. Thanks for having me. How are you? Great. So for people who don't know who you are, you come from Birth Movies Death is where I first heard about you and started following some of the work you were doing. You weren't necessarily focused on horror 
primarily at birth movies death. So I, I, I take it you're a horror fan. I, I think our listeners, I'm sure would love to know kind of what your background with horror is and what brought you to Fangoria. Sure. Um, yeah, I had a specific kind of beat at birth movies death and we had folks like Brian Collins writing horror there. And so I was not about to, you know, mess with a, <laughs> a winning, a winning formula there. Um, but I've been a horror guy since probably since I was 11 or 12 years old. Um, I'm one of the kids that was in American world in London in the theaters and, and it, uh, it left a mark on me. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I was literally just terrified of horror movies as a kid. And what happened was my brother, my older brother, Dean, gave me a book at Christmas time. And it was Tom Savini's book about how makeup effects were done. And it was like a weird epiphany moment. I was like, oh, there's people making these things. There are people creating these feelings in me and, and I can read about how they do it. And then I can watch these movies and not be so terrified. And that was sort of what led me into Fangoria. And I turned into a big Fangoria collector in the 80s, uh, devoured those things. They, they fell apart. <laughs> I, I messed around with makeup effects every Halloween. I was the guy who all my friends had to come and get, you know, makeup jobs from me and, uh, <laughs> and horror and me go way back. I, I, uh, from a professional point of view, I have a background in television production and I was lucky enough to write and direct a feature length documentary on Halloween for A&E back in 2010. And, uh, oh, okay. I think I've, I've seen that. <clears throat> hey, cool. And uh, that, that kind of put me in touch with a lot of the online writing world and folks who were sort of had made careers out of this stuff. And I, and I kind of, I fell into sort of birth movies death through that route. So horror kind of did take me to birth movies death, even if I wasn't writing about horror. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But I've written about my share of horror at BMD. Just got to look for it. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to mention the online writing world a little bit because you seems like you've reached out to a lot of kind of some of the top online writers that are out there. And I'm, I'm curious, how do you approach bringing back something like Fangoria, I guess, and what role will the online writers world play in that? So Fangoria went for 30 something years before it went away. And even at the end, it was doing some really great work. There was, you know, there's a guy named uh, Chris Alexander who was running it toward the end there. And he, he was putting some great content through and he was, he was dealing with some distribution and publishing problems that were out of his control. So my hat is off to that whole team. Yeah. But that said, our business plan, and I don't want to speak for my publisher, but I don't think it was ever, let's just pick it up where it left off. Right. Because all those writers who were doing that work, Fango at the end, have picked up where it left off. They're off in um, Rue Morgue and they're off in Delirium and they're, and, and sort of that. Right. I feel like it's covered. I feel like that what was happening in, in Fango uh, in, in 2015, 2016, when it went away, is, has continued through these other things. And Fango's DNA is in so many publications and so many websites that we ended up having a challenge for ourselves in that, well, what, what do we do that's different? You know, we don't just want to circle back and be the same thing anymore because it's it's covered. Right. So that's been our sort of question, and it's a question we wake up and ask ourselves every day, and 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 it's a question that guides our decisions. So it's an evolving answer. I can I can only say that, but <clears throat> but what I can tell you is that uh, from our point of view, there is just no point competing with the internet in terms of a news cycle. Right. And there is no point competing with the internet in terms of getting out timely reviews. Right. And that. You know, it might be a chicken or egg thing, but that's sort of one of the re- reasons behind us going quarterly. We we don't need to run that race anymore. We can sort of tap the brakes, right. slow down, create a quality 100-page quarterly that has sort of deeper dives, can go down rabbit holes that uh, have not been explored by the internet. I can't really tell you too much about what's happening there yet, but... Um, 
and at the same time still feel correct, still feel like the Fangoria that I read when I was a kid, which has a lot to do with picking up a magazine that was a little bit of a, uh, not a challenge, but you know, I had to put a little effort in getting it. As a kid, I had to ride my bike to the faraway store. It wasn't yeah. that the close one. <laughs> you know, you had to put that effort into it. You had to, you had to covet it. You know, it's something that's coveted and something that I cherished. And it's something that when I opened it, yeah, I saw things that I couldn't see anywhere else. And I read things that weren't talking down to me. So that's the spirit of Fangoria to me, right? So how do I recreate that in 2018? That's been our sort of mission statement and our, and our guiding, uh, our marching orders, I should say. Cool. Well, I, I had a couple of questions from a super fan friend of ours who had some dire questions for you, but I, you've kind of answered some of them as, as you've been talking. One of his questions was, um, since Fango is going to be coming back as quarterly, will you still have sections like the video eye of Dr. Cyclops and the terror teletype, both of which dealt with the latest releases and upcoming movies. It sounds like, no, you'll be moving away from that. Yeah. I don't expect to have uh, those columns like one-to-one in the magazine, but I do want to sort of incorporate the spirit of those columns. So what you might see is let's say without me getting too explicit, uh, a column by someone who attends every horror festival and knows what's coming down the pike on VOD right. in two months. And is going to tell you, here's six movies to look out for. I've watched cause I've watched 50 and here's the six or 10 great ones that you're going to be looking out for that kind of thing. Right. But yeah, to, to, to try to compete with that news cycle on a quarterly is it would be a losing battle. Right. And then I, I should say, I'm very excited about the writers that I've seen. Uh, you get, I think you've got some really exciting voices and, and minds, that you've reached out to that that we're aware of just on, on a public level. I'm sure there are a lot more on the, on the back end that we don't know about yet, but right. I, I, we did have some listeners wondering if there will be any people coming back, former contributors. And it sounds like that might not necessarily be the case. He's asking, I was a big fan of David J shows raving and drooling articles from back in the early nineties. Any chance of having him contribute any old favorites contribute like Tom Weaver, Michael Gingold, Tim Ferrante and Anthony Ferrante. Um, do you see yourself reaching out to any of the previous contributors to the magazine? Sure. Uh, so some of the names you've mentioned have been reached out to. Um, and I can tell you that Mike Gingold ha- will have a column in every issue Oh wow! as well as additional um, articles. He's working on a few things for us for the first issue. Uh, the same is true of Tony Timpone, who was the the editor during you know what I would what I would call the golden age of Fangoria. He's the guy who like you know created the the entire horror magazine culture. If you're asking me, right. Tony Timpone is a, a crucial figure in horror. I mean, people you know when we were coming of age, people came to deify Forey Ackerman for like kind of uh, being the seminal figure in fandom. Yeah. But to me, Tony Timpone is is that guy for my generation. Yeah, and I like. I got to meet him two weeks ago and it was like such a fanboy moment for me. And he, he, <laughs> he walked me around a month, a monster palooza introducing me to people. And it was like, I don't know. It was like a top 10 day for me. It was very cool. And so I'm very excited that Tony's going to have a column in every issue as well. Um, I know some of the other folks that you've named have been reached out to. Um, some of them haven't gotten back to me yet. Uh, some of them have, and we're, and we're talking, um, but there's no, there's no black and white policy about former contributors aren't going to be in the magazine. It's it's more of a thing of like I'm <clears throat> we're not putting we're not putting 2015's band back together automatically. So we're moving into a new space, and if and if writers make sense in that new space for us, then we want to include them for sure. Right. And that new space does include a bit a bit of legacy. It includes a bit of of, of leaning into the history of the magazine. So cool. It's a it, a very unscientific. 
chemical equation that we're working on. But there's there's no hard and fast rule about who is or isn't welcome back at all. So here's a question. I wonder if you have any hard and fast rules about. Have you thought about the breakup of how much of your coverage will be dedicated to, let's say, pre seventies or eighties or nineties or or more contemporary horror? Does that breakdown come into your planning, or is it just on a kind of case by case basis? It's definitely something I'm thinking about. I I would say if you look at uh, the first couple issues of Fangoria, they had classic universal stuff. Godzilla's on the cover of Fangoria number one. Mm-hmm. That said, to me, when Fango was really firing on all cylinders, it was it was a looking ahead magazine and it was about what's new and what's coming. So there's, there's a balance to be struck there that we are uh, aware of, I guess I would say. I don't, <clears throat> I don't know if we've hit it yet, but it's, it's something that's constantly on our sites. And I think that um, at the same time, the Fango brand is a little bit of a retro, got a little bit of a retro appeal. And I mean, we're coming to you from a place that's saying, we're just doing a magazine. We're not going on the internet. We're going to be print only. So we recognize the retro appeal. And certainly there's going to be a certain amount of retrospective pieces. But pre-1970 would have to be a very specific pitch for me. Right. Because I think there's magazines that are out there doing it already. Right. And they're doing a great job at it. Okay, one last super fan question from our friend Joel. Uh, he uh, he says, in the 90s, Fango had notes from the underground where true indie filmmakers wrote about their experience making their DIY movies. Any chance of bringing that back or something like that back? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, because it, it falls in line with the other thing that we really think is important about Fangoria and, and about resurrecting Fangoria is that it had a certain amount of first-person filmmaker access. It wasn't People Magazine reporting something fluffy. It was it was in the trenches with these guys as they told you how they did it. And that's that's a huge part of the spirit of Fangoria. So that's definitely something we want to resurrect. And, it, and it's and it's some one of our contributors has been talking about it nonstop yet. And I'm just waiting for him to deliver that column because that's that's very much his focus. Very cool. Yeah. So just this is more, I guess, a business question, but it seems that you know, the market obviously has changed for print media drastically. And it seems like you're moving into kind of a more boutique area that we see with a lot of like waxwork records or, uh, you know, Mondo and kind of the stuff for collectors essentially is what, is what we're seeing. Is that how you're thinking about this in terms of what you're producing or how do you kind of imagine starting a print publication, I guess in 2018? Yeah. No, that, that's 100% right. I, I come from BMD where we did a print edition a few times a year and we noticed that it appealed to not a newsstand market, but to a collector market. Right. If we put some great imagery on the cover and we stuffed it with some great writing that you couldn't find anywhere else, yeah. those things sold out. And we and it wasn't the primary business, much like Fangoria is not the primary business of Cinestate, which is a, a motion picture production company and a publishing company and you know a multimedia Endeavor. So we talked to some of the folks from pre- the previous version of Fango and, and the, the business model that they told us about was daunting and terrifying and uh, bleak. And I don't, I don't know that we want to just repeat what's been done. So right. if we can, uh, cause you know, that didn't pan out so well, but if we can, <laughs> if we can sort of take the lessons that we learned from, from what, you know, talking with those people and, and apply it to a different kind of model a model where, again, it's <clears throat> it's like you said, oh, boutique. It's, it's it's a little more carefully curated and and targeted to a, an audience that gets what we're doing. 
then right. then that's certainly a good plan for the first year. And we can probably see what happens after that. I'm curious about the artwork. Are you going to go in that kind of uh, boutique kind of direction or are you sticking with kind of uh, the Fangoria design we were used to, I guess, when we last saw it? Uh, okay. So <clears throat> it's been a point of contention within our offices about the, the approach to that. And I, I think I've got them convinced to my side that I want, fa- I want this issue to look from across the room. Like you're, if you're squinting, maybe you're looking at an issue of Fangoria from 1987 and it's, wow. and it's, a photograph on the cover for right now. And it's, uh, it's retaining that sort of vintage kind of appearance. Cool. Inside the magazine, it's going to be a little bit of a different experience and there is going to be space for original artwork in there. And I, and I've seen some of the artwork that's, that's coming in this first issue. I've seen some pencils and some, some, uh, some sketches and I'm, I'm getting kind of psyched, but we're going to incorporate that original art in a different way. Uh, because it, once again, if you look at uh, Rue Morgue and Diabolique and Horror Hound, they're all killing it with the, with the painted covers. And yeah, you know, I don't know that we need to also do that. Right. Right. So to me, it's more about zigging where other folks might be zagging and not, not out of any kind of like impetuousness, but just out of like respect. It's like, okay, yeah. Delirium's got the painted cover thing handled. And, and so maybe we can go in another direction. Yeah. And you know, the thing about a magazine is we can change our mind in three months. <laughs> so right. that's where we're at. Well, I do want to let people know that there were some subscription issues with the last version of Fangory and you guys are amazingly picking up the issues that, that people lost and uh, people can send an email with the details of their specific problems they may have had to uh, you guys via Fangoria.com. That's an incredible commitment to yeah, let, pick up someone else's bad job. <laughs> it's worth restating because yesterday we, we sent out an email blast and we thought, Oh, well, we told people this in February. They know already, but a lot of people hadn't gotten that info. So I'm going to have to like restate it a few times this week, but yeah. So there were, there were a number of subscribers who paid for a subscription under the previous owner and did not get one. And so we, we did not buy that corporation. We bought the copyright and the title and the IP. So it's a, it's a new company. It's a new business. We did not buy their debt. But at the same time, we recognize that the brand uh, is worth restoring the faith in the readers. And so if someone got stiffed on a subscription – they need to go to Fangoria.com and look for the little link where it says, did you get stiff on a subscription and send us an email, tell us your story and we'll give you a year free. It's amazing. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Well, I I think everything you're saying is great. And I think as horror fans, you know, we, we appreciate this kind of stuff. We love that someone cares about the past and is willing to put that effort in. I mean, I, I, just think what you guys are doing is, is really incredible. So congratulations to you. Thanks, man. And uh, congratulations to all of us for getting the chance to, to check out Fangoria once again. Is there anything else about what you're doing that you think the public really needs to know about? Yeah, May 1st, 3 p.m. Eastern, we will be open for subscriptions. So yeah, May 1st, 3 p.m., Fangoria.com. Come subscribe. Very cool. And the first issue is expected in October. Right around a certain holiday. Okay. If you know what I mean. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There might be something noteworthy for horror fans in the month of October. Okay. Very cool. Well, thank you, Phil. We really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to hearing a lot more about Fangoria and a lot more from you in the future. Thanks, Josh. Okay. And uh, let's talk about some news real quick. So um, I slipped this one in on you guys and I'm sorry about this little bit of a surprise. So this weekend, as we record this episode, um, we have the release of Avengers 
Infinity War. And for those who are into uh, superhero stuff, we saw just this week the the Venom trailer. Did you guys see the Venom trailer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I saw Elizabeth Banks' reaction to the Venom trailer. <laughs> Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I, I missed her reaction. What was no, the, well, it, it's, it's R-rated, but um, like, yeah, it was. So she hated it. Funny. She hated it. Like, <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right. I'll have to look that up. But yeah. So um, did, how did you feel about the Venom trailer, Dave? Did you watch it? No, I didn't. I didn't. I did not see it. Okay. What, I, I mean, I thought it had the vibe of Spider-Man Homecoming. I just that is not at all what I expected from a Venom trailer. Kind right. of the the fun that he's having with the powers in the trailer felt very similar to me to Spider Man Homecoming. It just felt wrong <laughs> for Venom. Right. I know there are a lot of Venom fans who are very happy about this. They finally got their Venom movie, and it looks like Venom, and that's enough for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it bugs me a little bit. I, I'm not super happy. And the reason I'm bringing it up on Horror Movie Podcast is because it does, you know, well, Venom's a monster of sorts, but it, it also appears to be um, it built somewhat like a horror film, the way this is. Well, it was a real opportunity to make a horror movie because, you know, the comic book thing has been done to death and they're always looking for different genres to apply to it, whether it's a heist movie or a world war two movie or what, what have you. Mm-hmm. So it's actually makes a lot of sense that they would start doing a few of these as horror films. They've talked about Kevin Feige's talked about wanting to do some straight ahead horror movies in the Marvel cinematic universe. And, uh, you know, they've talked about bringing blade back, which I think is a fantastic idea. I would love to see blade back in, in a new form, not so much with Wesley Snipes personally, but, um, you know, and they've talked about the new mutants, uh, which was slated to come out is supposedly a straight ahead horror film, but, um, you know, obviously that's a Fox film, but that is now owned by Disney. So that could potentially become part of the Marvel cinematic universe. You know, Venom is a Marvel character who potentially, you know, we've seen Spider-Man switch over from Sony. So it's possible that the Venom will too. And, I don't know why they wouldn't do a couple of straight head horror films, to be honest. Yeah. They have horror comics. Why is, where, where is it written that a comic book movie has to be an action film? You know, it doesn't really make sense to be honest. Exactly. And I think that, you know, I, I do, again, I, I think that this appears like it will have definite horror elements in it, but I do wish it were like, it would be so great if this could be a, a total horror flick and I think it would really raise the stakes in future films when when this character Venom faces off against Spider-Man because we would see what he's capable of, you know, and, and be afraid of him. But anyways, but I was a little bit disappointed. I think the way you described it was was really, it's almost, it's almost silly or kooky or bizarre or something. And I'm like, mm. no, you know, it just bugs me. <laughs> Anyways, so. I'm glad you brought Venom up because that was released. That trailer was released at CinemaCon, which I don't know how, but I have never heard of CinemaCon until this year. I don't know if I'm just same here, been living under a rock, but it's been everywhere this year. I feel like that's all people are talking about is CinemaCon, and so much movie news was released this year at CinemaCon. And I just, you know, we don't do a lot of horror news on the show, but I thought there's been so much out recently. We should maybe touch on it. If you guys are cool with it. Yeah, let's do it. Um, 
the big thing that happened is that they showed footage from the new Halloween movie as a, as a trailer and mm-hmm. people were losing their minds, just loved it. And so that's exciting. Yes. And there's been a lot of interesting news around Halloween in the last week and a half or so. Jason Blum confirmed that John Carpenter will be scoring the movie, which I think is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you guys excited about that? Of course. And I think that's great. Any involvement with, from John Carpenter, but you know, his music is what he's best known for at the moment, you know, with his, the touring he's been doing and new albums. And so, and his music's so unsettling, right? I mean, it's very creepy. It gets under my skin. I, I, I love it. I mean, he's still got it. So it's exciting to see that. Um, there was some news, you know, the, the poster came out and they showed the mask. Yes. Dying to hear. What'd you, what'd you think? Cause I know that you are, very serious about this mask and about yeah. getting it right. And when we reviewed the whole Halloween franchise, that was, that was something you addressed in each installment. So Josh, tell it. So uh, I, I love what I've heard from this. I heard um, from, I don't know if it was the costume designer who talked about it, but did an interview talking about how they sculpted this based on the original mask from the first film, which of course is the captain Kirk. Mm-hmm. mask that they started with they sculpted it based on that and then he looked at a lot of different masks that had been around for 40 years and how those have aged in different circumstances so i guess he thought it would be a spoiler to let us know where this mask has been exactly that that might uh, be a spoiler for the film but he said under the circumstances this mask has been stored in i aged it appropriately and it, it does call to mind the Rob Zombie mask to some degree, but that's fine. I mean, I thought that was one of the cool things about that movie, actually. Yes. Um, and, you know, this mask, knowing that it's based on the Shatner mask, knowing that it's based on real aging. Now, some fans have been upset because the original mask does exist from the movie, and it does has not aged in the same way that this mask appears to have aged. But the costume designer said, look, that mask has been sitting on a shelf for 40 years. The mask in our movie has not been right. Like it's been in some other kind of environment. And so mm-hmm. it makes sense. And it's fine. I think that it's aged differently. These are really geeky things that we as fans care about. But I, I love think, it. You know, Michael Myers is the star of these films to some degree. So, and I said this, you know, back when we reviewed the franchise, but if it doesn't look like Michael Myers, it doesn't feel like you have the star of your movie there. And right. So it doesn't, you know, <laughs> exactly. it feels a little weird. So it, it feels like Halloween three. It's weird. Like, you know, I'm just, yeah, I'm just, exactly. ma- just messing everybody. Just messing. <laughs> so, you know, one bit of like movie news that came out is that there had been a test screening for this movie. I guess um, Jason Blum tweeted that he had seen the film twice and loved it. I don't know what else he's going to say. And, Frankly, I mean, he said the same thing about truth or dare, so it doesn't give me a huge amount of confidence necessarily. <laughs> right. But, but it's nice to hear nonetheless. Um, but there was a, supposedly a test screening, and one of the people at the test screening, who again supposedly is a big Halloween fan, really disliked the movie and broke the non disclosure agreement and blabbed everything, including photographs of, um, the response card that they had at the screening to horror freak news and horror freak news uh, was kind of one of the sites on the forefront of covering um, how that test screening went. And they were asked to take down all of their content by the studio, I believe by universal and they did, but 
there's been a lot of denial about whether or not this test screening even happened. John Carpenter said the movie hasn't been screened. He says there's not a rough cut even that exists, but that is, is in contrast to what Jason Blum has said. He's seen it twice. So right. Right. We don't know what to believe here, but, but the most recent thing we have is that they screened a trailer, a rough cut trailer too, at CinemaCon and the crowd absolutely loved it. Went wild for it. So, Wow. That's exciting. Everything you just said <laughs> was like, was like uh, every angle of the spectrum. It's like, <laughs> like some of it was like, I, 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 I mean, I'm recognizing that we're, we don't know any facts for sure, but it's weird how it's also contradictory. I, do you want, yeah. do you wonder, Josh, if they just put a bunch of like, um, I don't know, distractions out into the, into the world is just uh, so we can it's possible just to get some hype going i don't really think that's the case because if you actually look at like the responses from the guys at blumhouse they're not they don't seem excited about it. they seem kind of annoyed by the whole thing um yeah okay. like ryan turk and jason blum but nick castle who as we know was the original shape and is back to play the shape in the new movie which again super exciting yes um he has tweeted a lot about all of this stuff. And, you know, he, he says that David Gordon green told him that they are now expediting the release of the trailer based on the response they've gotten, you know, the desire that there's been following CinemaCon to have that released mm-hmm. to the general public. So we may be seeing a trailer very soon. Thanks to all of the buzz from CinemaCon. Yeah. And frankly, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of shocked. We haven't seen the trailer yet, but I mean, maybe they're just waiting for a, oh huge barely finished filming it like less than a month ago so i know but like you know how they create trailers like way way in advance just from portions of the film and it's not even like put together yet but anyways i just i'm excited i really want to see it and i'm looking forward to it so well one movie that released a clip jay that i think you might be interested in that comes out may 1st is tremors a cold day in hell the (laughs) graboids take to the arctic in a cold day in hell and it's it graboids in the snow yes so are you there for that yeah yeah you know i will be you know i will be <laughs> although Did you watch the clip that was online no i haven't yet actually no it was unfortunately reminiscent of avalanche sharks that we've talked about before <laughs> or, or snow sharks as it's also known oh no um a little bit. I mean, it looks slightly better quality. Jamie Kennedy looks like he's the same age as Michael Gross, so he's been living hard in the past few years. Oh. <laughs> but, um, plays his son. And uh, there, I don't know. None of it looked like something I would necessarily want to see, but there were a couple <laughs> shots where the Graboids looked cool. I'm a, I mean, you know, I am a major fan of the original film. I'd probably give that a 10 out of 10 as we're talking about perfect scores. But I am not as enthusiastic about the sequels as you are, and I haven't even seen all of them. So yeah. we had heard tell that um, that uh, Kevin Bacon wanted to return to the franchise, and that he was looking for a way to do another Tremors movie, but you know they didn't know how to handle the continuity. Maybe they'll ultimately do something like Jamie Lee Curtis is doing with Halloween. I love that. Just you know, break the continuity, do a one-off. I've been saying that with the batman movies and stuff for years we don't need to see another origin story just give us a really cool tale a one-off you know movie <laughs> i'm super excited they're doing that with halloween yeah. i would be totally in 
for a Kevin Bacon Tremors movie that didn't necessarily follow where Michael Gross has taken the franchise over the last <laughs> 20 years or whatever, 40 years or whatever it's been. So yeah, seriously. And and I, I must confess. So yeah, everybody, I own the attack pack as they call it, which is like the first four films. And I still haven't got, even though I love Tremors, I really do. I didn't get around to watching Tremors five bloodlines yet. And I know like that's shame on me for that. <laughs> so I, I still haven't gotten to the fifth one. And, but I am still excited about having graboids in the snow. I mean, come on. Right. I mean, cool. Yeah. Uh, the question is, will they have, and I'm quoting from a name in the film, will they have ass blasters in the snow? Like, that's what I want to know. <laughs> Did you? Are you familiar with those those variations? No, sir. Are those the little like <laughs> little pod things? Well, they they the are um, round ones. I'll just let me just say this: they are aptly named, and it's pretty hilarious. Okay. <laughs> so, anyways, my uh, my juvenile teenage self thought it was pretty entertaining, but anyway, we'll see. So, tremors, a cold day in hell. Yes. Okay, here, here are a couple quick news items. Okay. Andy Muschietti has promised that It Chapter 2 is going to be darker and scarier than the original. Bring it. And that film is currently filming. Um, Stranger Things Season 3 has begun filming. So those are both exciting. Um, here's a, a big one. Ash vs. Evil Dead has been canceled after three seasons. Yeah. And Bruce Campbell has officially stated... He is retiring Ash. He's not ever going to play Ash again at the end of this trip because people have said, well, let's try to get the show picked up on Netflix or maybe there's you know another movie to be made here. And Bruce Campbell says, nope, that's it. I'm done. Uh, this is the end of Ash. So with, with all due respect. Yeah, I mean, with all due respect, that sounds kind of Bruce Campbell-ish. But I mean, why, why was it canceled? Honestly, like, I don't know. I think maybe just there weren't enough viewers. It's a Awesome show. I mean, I admittedly, I'm not caught up on it, but I have loved everything I've seen about it. It took me a little bit to kind of get into the vibe of it because it is different from the films, but man, eventually you're back there with the deadites and you're like, yeah, where have you been all my life? Why didn't they, why haven't they been doing this for the last 20 years? It's so great that they finally did make it. Um, I, anybody who's a fan of, especially, the last two movies and army of darkness. And if you, if you're cool with the comedy, um, absolutely have to see Ash versus the evil that it's so much fun. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I thought that was kind of sad to see him retire. Uh, Bloody disgusting has done an article saying, you know, we've got now thanks to these new, the show and the remake movie, we have these three female protagonists who could carry on the evil dead franchise without Ash. And, and they kind of make a, argument as to why how that would work and how it could work well so yeah that'd be cool yeah i mean i hope i hope something like that does come about just because only because i mean i i've seen some people like super sad about this on twitter and i you know i feel bad when that happens you know you feel you feel for them like if your show that you love gets canceled that's it sucks yeah so the last two bits of news i wanted to mention and um you know, Jordan Peele has announced he is currently writing Get Out 2. Nice. Which, I, you know, I wasn't sure if that was going to happen. I wasn't sure I wanted it to happen. But now that I know it's happening, I'm pretty excited about it. Yes. And I'm hoping for good things. They've also, Paramount has announced they have greenlit A Quiet Place too. So that is happening. <laughs> well, um, 
you know, and I won't say anything to spoil the film, but I, I for me, that's a must, honestly, because yeah, I want to know, I want to know what happens next. See, and I was I, like I was with Get Out. I was perfectly satisfied with A Quiet Place as a one-off film. I don't think it needed a sequel. I think it's a strong movie to just be a Rosemary's Baby. You know, like uh, one of those movies that's this is the movie that defines this time. And mm-hmm. but. Yeah, I can see it. I get it. And John Krasinski had already said, yeah, I would love to do a sequel. The writers said, man, we've got a ton of scenes that we couldn't fit into this movie. We already have, you know, documents and documents full of ideas. And so, yeah, the the studio said, yeah, let's do it. So they're, they're going to move forward with a sequel. I'm curious if John Krasinski will direct it or just act in it or how that will play out. But Well, let me make a, um, a prediction here on this. Yeah. So uh, about both of these. So I think I think pulling off and I know this sounds crazy. This sounds like the opposite of what you'd expect. But I think pulling off a get out 2 is is more feasible in terms of I mean, let's look at Key and Peele's like history. Um they they've been able to write so much intelligent commentary, you know, in in their right. in their work. So I think even if Get Out 2 doesn't necessarily stick with the the same exact characters and everything. I mean, they could do a, you know, it's, it's in this get out series of type stories that's related. I mean, it could be another, you know, just really (laughs) message heavy type of thing. And I think they'll pull that off now, now where, and I won't do any spoilers, I promise, but where a quiet place ends, I think it'll be much more difficult to transition into a, a genuinely good film that's of of the quality of a quiet place from from where this first one ends i think it'll be hard to pick up well and it could be a prequel it could you know we don't we could see the first however many days it was i don't remember at this point 384 or something like that you know yeah. days of this um it could be anything. So that's true. That's it could also just, it could also be like a world war Z thing where it's not even these characters. It's just in a completely different situation. Yeah. Know, different part of the outbreak. But if they, if they start but, doing the Cloverfield business on all that stuff and start riffing on that, I'm going to be, what if, what if it is freaking, the movie that connects it to Cloverfield? What I'll if be, it's like split and they're like, <laughs> you know what? This movie, it, <laughs> I will be so this ticked was a off. Sequel to Cloverfield all along. Oh, I hate you that. Know, I think you know, as you know, this was at one point yes. discussed between them that this might he might do it as a Cloverfield sequel. They they considered it, right. they talked about it. Um, this movie has gone on to become so successful that it, it it was number one at the box office. It left for a week, and now it's back at number one. This last week, as we're recording this, mm-hmm. so it's it's made a huge amount of money. And I think um, there's no chance it merges with Cloverfield at this point. It's probably going to go on to be much more successful than Cloverfield. I do disagree with you, though, Jay. I think um, this premise is a lot easier to do a second time, as opposed to I do think. Although I think both films have this to some degree, mm-hmm. I think Get Out even more has like a little bit of a lightning in a bottle situation where it's so hard to capture that magic again. Whereas I feel like the premise of A Quiet Place is so simple and powerful that it's easy to kind of do again and again and again. Like again, I think you could do it as a television series, like The Walking Dead. You know, I think right. it's that <clears throat> but- evergreen a concept. 
I'm with you, and I would have totally felt the same way if we weren't talking about Jordan Peele. I just, I, with his abilities, I mean, I mean, he is so insightful and sharp. I feel like he could at least, um, you know, put together the material that has the the same amount of power as Get Out has. But I hope so. Well, do you want to get into some of the reactions that we had from the audience to A Quiet Place? And yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Horror as well. Yeah, if that's okay with the listeners, I hope we can talk a little bit about this because we did get some great feedback. We're always very thankful for everybody who engaged with us in these. <laughs> In that crazy episode. So what? Yeah, what do you got there, Josh? Well, Trey Whetstone, who I mentioned earlier, I thought he uh, he responded to something I had said on the show about Rachel not necessarily liking the movie, right? Even though she responded to it, uh-huh. and Trey says, much like your wife, my fiance said she did not enjoy a quiet place at first. However, she has since told me that she does like the movie after thinking about it for a couple of days. I'll take this as a small win since she says. She, how much she dislikes horror movies. So mm. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us are in that boat, but <laughs> you know, Rachel, just if I might, since I talked about her before, she actually, she was really, her mind, I think has gone even further away from the movie. She's kind of annoyed by the way pregnancy was dealt with in the film. And like, she was like, I, I think what I was reacting to negatively is like, it felt kind of like a violation to deal with pregnancy in that way. I can like, I, I like can't exploitative? relate to that, like, 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 is she yeah, saying like exploitative yeah. and, and being insensitive? Yeah. I see. I see. Yeah, and and I thought for me, I thought, well, that's the power to me of it as a horror concept, right? But I, I guess I, you know, I can't obviously relate to it in the same sure way that she can. Yeah, that makes. But we sense. did have a couple of those types of responses from from moms. We had a lot of moms tweet at us this week talking about their experience watching this with their kids and and things like that which i thought was interesting we also had a lot of people without kids say what are you guys talking about we can understand yeah (laughs) we can understand what it means to you know to to have this experience even if we don't have children but you know who didn't buy that jay Uh, who who (laughs) thought that was full of hooey uh lady phantom Yes. Yes, I know. That's exactly right. Yeah. Did you see Lady Phantoms? I, okay. I did, and, and I'll tell you. So I was, I was trying for once in my life to to be the diplomat and to try to uh, skate the the middle line with that, where because because obviously as a parent, you know, for me personally, I'm like, yeah, like people who don't have kids don't really have the same you know experience, but. I could also appreciate and, and and seriously just empathize with people who who don't have kids who are like whatever we get it intellectually so so I I just Josh I just wanted to express that I could see why people would feel frustrated like David Chen for example and say yeah I get it as an intellectual concept you, you'd care about your family members but go ahead right go ahead what do you what do you no say? I mean I think I think sometimes people without kids think people with kids are kind of dolts like you're always talking about your kids when nobody cares about it. You always think it's so special. Any, any idiot can have a, have a kid and yes, yes, yes. But at the same time, I don't know. I do think it's, it, mm-hmm. maybe it's exclusionary and I apologize for that. And I know there are people who don't like kids, don't want kids <laughs> and other people who do want kids and can't have kids. I know. So I know there's a lot of feelings about it that are beyond 
just movies and people have their a lot of their own right like passionate feelings about all this stuff but sure i kind of tend to agree with lady phantom you know she says you can't intellectually understand crap about having kids and being afraid for them it's instinctive it's a gut feeling it doesn't make intellectual sense and i really like <laughs> what she says there it doesn't make intellectual sense yeah that's you know it, it, it's why we can all hate these people from ha- for having a baby in this situation. Like it's so irresponsible. Right. But I also kind of get it at the same time. Like it's, it's a hard position to be in. Well, what it reminds me of. Which is why the movie worked for me. Right. Well, you know what that reminds me of though? And, and I don't know if we touched on this, but honestly it's like, okay, we, we presently live in a world um, of terrorism we, we we live in a world right. where there's nuclear threats and and i think that's right. you know you could you could draw parallels to like having these beastly freaks in a quiet place and then the, the kind of dangerous environment we live in now so you could still see that in in our present times is like okay are we going to have kids and bring them into this world this real world right now right so mm-hmm. anyways we also had a lot of people who the movie didn't just didn't work for you know, uh, Ryan B says it was a decent film, but under the other than the quiet gimmick, it felt pretty generic. I actually found the social experiment aspect more interesting than the movie itself. He liked sitting in the theater and experiencing it with other people and watching the audience grapple with being quiet in the theater. So <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting. And I agree. I think yes. that can be a lot of fun watching. We talked about that when we reviewed Get Out the first time. And for myself, I really remember seen scream in the theater and outbreak was one I remember seeing in the theater and the audience reaction to that being so much of my enjoyment of it. But yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and, and what I had mentioned, and I, I'm sorry, I keep referring to myself and stuff cause everybody has already heard my two cents on it, Josh, but, but, but I have encountered since other people who felt the same way. Whereas if they were, if they were not quiet, they were afraid that they would endanger the family in the film. So if they weren't yeah. quiet in the theater, the family in the film, and that's really fascinating to me. That's how I yeah. felt. Weird Weldon says, I am so looking forward to going to see a quiet place with my wife who is 36 weeks pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> yeah. That was funny. That'd be intense. So a- anything else on a quiet place? Oh, there's so much feedback. I don't, I don't know how much of it we want to get into, but, um, Okay. Was there was there any uh, critique that you thought was pretty pretty well, you know, well constructed that you thought was like okay, they got legitimate points here that aren't spoilery? Um, yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely heard a lot of people say it was kind of overrated or not as good as we said, and um, but not a lot of evidence, I guess, given for that one person who had more specifics was Andred in a tweet that he had sent out into the ether, but um, he had a very specific viewing experience because he is blind. And so he talked about watching it with um, the sign language subtitles. Mm -hmm. Let's see. What does he, what does he say here? Great premise. Interesting use of deafness as an advantage. Lots of suspense. Saw a few more plot holes and impractical decisions than most saw with audio description. So that's what he saw, which had its pros and cons. It read the sign language subtitles, 
which I wouldn't have been able to see. So that's kind of cool that it read the subtitles of the sign language. Um, but it also spoke during moments that were supposed to be silent and muffled the sound when it came in. So that maybe affected my viewing experience more than most. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love, I love hearing from Andred about stuff like that. I think that's just amazing. Yeah, absolutely. There were a, a few other people who also kind of wished that we had delved more into, um, the idea that this deaf character is existing in a movie that deals with sound so much. We, I guess we didn't talk about that a whole lot, right? but it, it is an interesting aspect. Honestly, for me, it was annoying during the first half of the film. Cause I thought, why is he so obsessed with this deaf character? It's kind of antithetical actually to the world. It, it doesn't quite make sense. It, it seems like it should, but it actually doesn't. <laughs> but then it, comes into play so much in the second half of the film that um right clearly by design so so i mean but but, and maybe uh, and i'm sorry if this isn't accurate here but like so but you get too i mean you get because because what i realized i'm like okay yeah he's she's at a, a serious disadvantage because if she can't hear the things going on around her she might not be as quiet as she would otherwise be if she heard danger nearby. And so that's why he was so obsessed yeah. with figuring out. Right. I mean, so yeah, so, I think so. So that's how I read the first half and his determination to find, figure out something for her. Oh, I wasn't talking about the character. I was talking about Krasinski as a director. Oh. I, like why I, I was, it seemed like a lot of time to devote to that notion, which to me just seemed anyway, gotcha. he, he, it all makes sense by the end. So it's right. Fine. It's, yeah. It's not a problem with the movie, but um, it, it it is that kind of weird choice because in the natural version of the world where we you know we don't learn everything that we ultimately do, mm-hmm. it it just doesn't actually quite fit the theme that great in my opinion. Other than what we discussed on the show last time, which was maybe it was being able to communicate silently as a family already that has allowed them to survive as long as they have. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes you wonder, right? Like what if they, I mean, kids in general are too, are loud anyway. Anybody who has kids who knows that and people who don't have kids intellectually know that, but, but <laughs> that was just a joke. But honestly, Josh, what if, what if one of the kids had been like super rambunctious and like, you know, had, I guess, behavioral problems where the kid was just, inherently a loud and rambunctious child that would have been another angle that that but would have played into yeah. the horror of that world i'm just saying that's kind of interesting yeah maybe we'll see more of that as the series progresses mm-hmm. who knows how many of these things we're going to see right exactly all right and uh i have a a sense that you're <laughs> are you reluctant to talk about the the pig-headed horror oh, feedback. Not at all. Okay. Not at all. I was just, I was just kind of keeping them separate. We definitely got a lot of pig-headed horror feedback. <laughs> um, yeah. It was exactly what I predicted. I think you know there were there were the people who uh, were mad at me for not having stopped this at all, and then there are the people who were mad at me for poo-pooing your fun ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I think you came out clean in all of this. I think that's great. You know, I was, I was honestly, and I'm not pandering. This is the hundred percent truth. I was so impressed with the audience because of the amount of 
I feel like they were really honest with us and I felt like they came like wherever their angle was, whether it was coming after me or coming after you or whatever it was, I, I feel like they all at least took a look at it. I mean, that's the sense I got. They're like, okay, okay, what are these guys want trying to do here? And they were either like, yeah, that's stupid. You're wasting or, or like, 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 let me give you an example. I got an email from Mike that I laughed out loud when I read. <laughs> this is so funny. He says, Mike wrote, I love your podcast, but man, I had the bail on the pig head episode. How long, <laughs> how long can you talk about naming an episode? Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> and he's like, I'll, I'll listen to the next one, you know? And so, um, so then that was it. That's all he wrote. And it made me laugh because I'm like, okay, did, did Mike think that our theme discussion was strictly a conversation about naming it pig-headed horror because because we were trying to ex- explore a theme of horror i mean even though yeah. it might have been thinner than our other themes in the past of course i admit that but but yeah we weren't strictly talking about naming the episode for an hour but Anyway. No, yeah, someone else said that to me too. Like, you guys talked about whether or not you should do the podcast for 40 minutes. I'm like, no, we did it for maybe like five minutes or, <laughs> or six minutes. But a lot of that, even that to me was not really about the episode. And I, I do want to say on the air, I have gotten into a few little debates with people online. Like, we, it was all in good fun. We were all enjoying ourselves yes. during the course of that episode. Yes. And, Jay did ask us to feel free to rib him. So I was digging in a little bit deeper than I actually cared about. We're we're having a good time. But I think even that conversation about should we have this podcast episode or not is really about the bigger ideas about what is horror in the world? What is our place in that? Mm -hmm. What do horror fans want and need in our in our current time. And, and so, you know what I, I thought I liked that kind of conversation. I don't know. Maybe it's a little shoegazing and self-indulgent navel gazing, I should say. Yeah. I'm self-indulgent, but I, you know, I agree. I'm with you hundred percent on what you just said. And, and yeah, I will, I do want to say to the listeners, all those who uh, defended my honor, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, I mean, th- thank you for doing that. But yeah, the truth is at the beginning, I, I mean, we, we laughed about this. Um, a, a good bit. Well, it, it was funny at the different times, but like I said, <laughs> it wasn't funny the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. Like it wasn't all funny. I mean, we had to arrive at a place, but, but, but what happened was I'm like, this is pretty hilarious to me. Like how much Josh is against this. So I'm like, yeah, go ahead. You guys can, you know, make fun of me all you want. It makes for good radio. So I'm glad that I'm glad that you guys did that. And, and I like that aspect of it, but thanks to everybody for who, who, you know, we're trying to defend my dumb idea. I mean, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. And from my, from my side, you don't need to defend his dumb idea. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> he, he, any, any criticism he got, he brought on himself and I was totally, I mean, I'm, I'm half joking everything I said in, in right. the first place, you know, I personally, I mean, you can say what you want about how good a job I do on the show, but I brought it as hard as I would to any other episode. Like I was trying to do a good job. I came ready to True. play, you know, like I wasn't, I wasn't right. asking it last episode just because I didn't like the idea of the Agreed. So, Agreed. Right. Credits to you. And, and I'll tell you, let, let me confess something right here live on horror movie podcast. Okay. Um, this listener, I gotta, I gotta talk about Edward McKenzie. Okay. Now Edward, 
I, I love Edward because Edward Edward brought it. This is this was maybe one of the most um devastating, not in a bad way. I'm not saying I was like crying. I, I felt bad myself, not from what Edward said, but from my own failings. But here's what Edward wrote, and it utterly destroyed me, and I deserved it. He said, I'm I'm still reeling from the fact that we get a theme show of pig-headed horror before a franchise review of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But as absurd as that may be, concerning both subjects, I was surprised that Jay didn't mention that Leatherface lures his first victim deeper into his house by making pig noises. A small detail, no doubt, but considering he brought up the film under the context of this discussion and yet failed to mention it even though it's his favorite horror movie, felt like a curious oversight and and this is the this is the part guys where i i died a real death he, he said also in terms of pig-headed horror perhaps this next film wasn't mentioned because it doesn't entirely belong into the horror genre but given that it's jay's all-time favorite film i was yet again surprised to not hear its mention The creature in M. Night Shyamalan's The Village is revealed to have the face of a warthog. And guys, quote, so end quote there. When I realized that The Village has a pig head, a pig headed monster. (laughs) I mean, I've seen that film, I bet you, 25 times. I'm obsessed with it. I love it. Um, whether it's horror or not is certainly up for debate. I mean, it's, it's a lot more of a thriller to me, but let me just say, I should have mentioned it. I regretted it. And, and honestly, you can, you can ask, Josh can attest and Dave, I was worried about my, my mental well-being. I'm like, maybe, maybe I had a stroke sometime in the past year because I couldn't even process the fact that, I mean, it didn't even make any sense why I wouldn't think of my favorite movie in that. So anyway, it devastated Your two me. Two favorite movies. Yeah, my yeah my <laughs> two my favorite horror, full blown. Yeah, and we did. Talk, I mean, yeah, we did talk about Leatherface a little bit. I, the other thing, I was trying not to stretch it quite so much, but Edward, point taken. We do need to do the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise review, but I have to blame Doctor Shock a little bit on that. Because wow, he wow. hates, he hates. <laughs> what what is it? The fourth one, the Matthew the, McConaughey the new generation. Yeah, yeah well, that's all right. I'm just not going to watch it again. I, I I remember enough of that <laughs> junk. I can talk about it, but there's just no way in hell I'll, I'll watch it again. I've had to watch it twice now, <laughs> and I'm not going to watch that thing again. But I can talk about it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's and not- I'll say. Jay, I haven't gone on record as a fan of The Village as much as you have, but I do love it. It is one of my favorite films. I I, I think in some ways I love it just as much as you. I, you know, probably not to the full extent because you're so passionate about it, but I really was a defender of that film when it came out. I do not understand why people bag on it at all, let alone the twist, which I got me when I saw it in the theater. I mm-hmm. loved it. I mean, I don't know. I really enjoyed that movie. Well, yeah. Well, you but, we're, you and I are doing a special features episode yeah. on that at some point, and we're gonna we're gonna spell all that out and unpack that. But go ahead. Sorry to Absolutely. jump in. But one of my all time favorite films, and this was called out. Andrew Weidensall pointed out that there's a pig headed killer in the Burbs as well, and it is that kind of like pagan 
thing that we see in the village. In fact, it looks very similar to the one in the village. I just wow. thought that was hilarious that we both missed one of our favorite movies. Um, and it's also, it's interesting because we did talk a lot about the hillbilly um, pig head chainsaw killers in that episode, but there was the other side of it, the more demonic cult side. And I think that is, seems to be represented in the, the aesthetic of both the burbs and the village. So mm-hmm. I thought that was yes. kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, we got one more comment in that kind of zone that I wanted to reference from the mad cytologist who called this out. He said, as long as we're talking about a uh, horse and horse, one obvious miss here are the swine things from William Hope Hodgson written in 1908 and in public domain. Hodgson was ahead of his time and a huge influence on a lot of HP Lovecraft. I mean, who doesn't love a siege narrative involving involving eldritch evil pig humanoids from beyond time? So <laughs> right. I I personally am not as familiar as I should be <laughs> with William Hope Hodgson. Same. And I'm 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 curious about it. I I I said I assume the tomes aren't entitled swine things, although I do like the sound of that. And he said, No, that is the name of the creatures. That's what he calls them in the book. The actual story is called The House on the Borderlands. The narrators find an old rundown cabin with a journal inside, chronicling a hermit's experience in the cabin, which has a long history of paranormal phenomenon. The swine things are simply what the journal writer refers to the creatures that he encounters. And so, yeah, I guess Lovecraft has mentioned that Hodgson was a big influence on him. So, pig-headed horror. <laughs> so there you go. The 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 last one I'll I'll read here is um, Vicious Victor. Uh, to mention him again, he he said, and this made me happy. It did my heart some good. He said, "I suppose pig-headed horror is now an official." Subgenre of horror. Congratulations! No, no it's not. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. And I, and I thought it was funny. Uh, yeah, that was. I think you were discussing that with him, Josh, weren't you? You were like going back and forth. You were you were saying, is it is it a genre? Is it this? Is it that? Or I was saying it's clearly not a genre, but it must be this or this or that. And he's like, yep. So it's a genre. I'm like, no. Um, <laughs> well, you know, we had the same thing from Allison with an eye on mm-hmm. Twitter. Halloween mom on on Twitter. She sent us a tweet. It was like, I'm a big fan of pig-headed horror movies. I'm like, no, you're not. That's not a thing. You're not a fan of pig-headed horror. You've never thought that or said that before. But here's the yeah. thing. Here's what it comes yeah. down to. Yes, we we might not ever hear John Carpenter say pig-headed horror, but um, in the future, as we get and find movies that are released with a pig-headed killer, we will just, we will probably, I know I will, I'll refer to it as pig-headed horror. So, I think it, I think it will be, you know, eventually just fudge its way into <laughs> to becoming into a thing. Into the vernacular. Into yes. the mainstream, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well you we- know, the very first time I ever talked to Dave, ever in my life, <laughs> was on Horror Metropolis, and we did Silent Horror was the title of that episode. And yeah. one of the films we reviewed was Haxon from 1922. Yes. And Dave found it this week. He's like, what did you say, Dave? I said, it looks like we missed another one. There's a scene in Haxon with these two pig <sighs> uh, guards at a door and, and other creatures like running out of the door. Yeah. They're, they're, so I, I didn't even think of that one. 
And, and for that matter, I mean, not that it's horror, but Return of the Jedi, the Gamorrean guards in Jabba's castle, oh. they're, they're like pig-headed dudes. And, and then yeah, you got right. more Muppets, not just Miss Piggy, but the other pigs on the spacecraft, craft, pigs in space. Pigs in space, that's right. <laughs> Anyways, people are turning off this show now. I, I could just feel it. <laughs> Actually, Jay, did you see that um, the saw thing that I found with Miss Piggy? Yes, it was horrifying. It really was. I, I had to like hurry and scroll by it. And then and then was it Jason Dragon who was like, Hey, are we gonna I'm really tempted to start sending Jay Miss Piggy related things? And I'm like, You better not do that. Oh I don't like don't it. Do it. Don't do it. So <laughs> we, we we did get a little bit of feedback. People that had seen the farm and people that had seen um one of our listeners, I'm just scanning through to make sure I get the right person saw tormented at a, mm-hmm. at a gas station and bought it. No bought way. Torment. Now, yeah. was that wow. after hearing this podcast? Yeah. Oh, Due to you. Yeah. That, that makes my day. Yeah. That, that tormented that, that was at so many gas stations for so long It's seven 11. Yeah. It's everywhere. Yep. Okay. Awesome. I'm so happy. I'm so sorry that I'm missing your name here. I, I see your face. But I don't have the tweet in front of me. But um, yeah, to our um, listener that picked up "Tormented" based on this last episode, may God have mercy on your soul. Yeah, a huge props. No, "Tormented" isn't bad. You know, I, I think the person though who's this was the favorite episode of, and I think all the listeners should write to him and and tell him like how happy you are that he enjoyed it. Was Juan in Texas? Juan loved it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just messing. One's always busting my chops, my por- <laughs> my pork chops. So, right. anyways, well, I-, I thought he was actually very kind. He said, even he though was. this yeah. was my least favorite episode I've ever heard, <laughs> it's still better than what anybody else is putting out. So, like, that's very kind. Yeah, it was. Hey, that was nice. And there was a few people who said that. Just that they're saying, hey, I didn't. This wasn't my thing. But hey, you know what, <laughs> Jay? I give you a props for for giving it a try. Thanks. Yeah. Throwing it out there, you know, and, and uh, hey, uh, they could have, you know what? I, it, it, it's something I think we're going to be referring to in one way or another for years to come. Right. <laughs> you know, Andred said, this is truly one of the weirdest episodes of HMP I've ever listened to. And that's including the episode on weird horror. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. That cracked me up. I that loved it. So funny. <laughs> All right. Anything else on that? Because we can, we can, we can uh, wrap. But there, there are so many other great comments. I'm trying to find one of the comments. I think it was Frank the Fiend, but somebody mentioned the demonic history of the pig and where that that Mm. comes from. Read that. I'm sad that I'm not finding that right now. Yeah, that was um, a great comment. Looking for it here. Um, we've got a couple of Miss Piggy photographs sent to you, so that's always terrifying. <laughs> yes, it was. It was really freaky to me. Mm-hmm. I, I saw one person no, was wait, like, "No, does Miss Piggy have to be doing anything frightening, or does it just have to be like Miss Piggy posing that gets you that gets you scared?" <laughs> no, I, I I think she's just genuinely freaky. I mean, she's, she's just genuinely freaky. Do you get fr- freaked out by any of the other pigs in space from that Muppet show? <laughs> not not so much but i will say like if i've always thought i've always thought it would be great to make a slasher horror film where the slasher 
weapon of choice, the murder weapon, was like an edge trimmer, a weed whacker. Some people call it. I thought you were going to say it was Piggy Doll. No, no, wait. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. And then the mask, the slasher mask, would be a Miss Piggy head on a man (laughs) and and wields an edge trimmer. That'd be freaking scary to me. Well, I heard Jim Henson's son (laughs) just made an R-rated Muppet movie, so maybe that's in our future. Who knows? (laughs) Maybe so. Maybe maybe Miss Piggy uh, uh, goes ballistic. Jason Reed, here's a great comment, said on Twitter, I always enjoy your podcast, but this one had the added bonus of being able to contrast the sheer exuberance of Jay every time he utters the words pig-headed horror <laughs> with the relentless disbelief of Josh and Dave. They've devoted a whole show to this. That Big was, thumbs up. <laughs> that was one of my favorites. I love that comment. That was a good one. Yeah. Yes. So to kind of wrap up this pig-headed smut, um, <laughs> there, I, I wanted to do a giveaway, right, for a, a prize and and the challenge was, you know, if you tweet about this episode, hashtag pit, pig-headed horror, then, you know, you could qualify to win a pig mask that I will mail to you. I will order a pig mask and mail it to you. And so, um, there was one particular one. It was Joel O. And um, the, the Twitter handle is at Mishinkin. And um, he, he actually did two different pig-headed horror tweets. And in one of them, he had a picture of his dog that had like, um, I think it was like bologna or a piece of ham or something over the dog's face. And it kind of looked pig-like with the snout. Did, I think I saw that. Did yeah, you see? so disturbing. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was amazing. And I loved it. And the fact that he did that and he did too and he was supportive. So, um, so Joel O at uh, Mission Ken. You are the winner of the pig-headed mask, so email me at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. And if you give me your uh, mailing address, <laughs> if you trust a weirdo like me, um, I'll get that pig-headed mask. And your, and your mask size. Yeah, oh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Every once in a while, Dave, just from the deep, I, comes in with one of the funniest things I've ever heard, and that was, that was it this episode. I know, I love it. Okay. Um, here, here are a couple of different little things. I, I know we've talked about pig-headed a lot, man, but there's here are just a couple little things. Um, I was going to mention Animal Farm as a reason why I was kind of frightened of pigs from the age of a child. Like that was a scary thing for me. They kill the farmer, or in some cases, chase the farmer off and sleep in his bed and take over the house. And that was always kind of freaky to me. Victor, he says. While talking literature, how about the similarities between pig-headed horror and the ancient Greek legend of the Minotaur? I thought that, yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about as well. Yep. Neat. And I, as we talk about the animal cruelty of not only ham, but then putting the ham on a dog's face, I should mention Amanda Williams sent us a very nice tweet, uh, which, you know, we've talked about when we did our shark attack episode that of course humans do much more evil to sharks. You know, she says in honor of pig headed horror, I wanted to share some real life pig horror that occurs every day. And she sent us some pretty disturbing images of humans mistreating pigs. Uh, the website was pigs.mercyforanimals.org. She says, it reminds me that pigs aren't a scary animal. Humans are. And yes, I, I, I mean, Two things to that. Yes, absolutely worth sharing, even though it's graphic and 
horrible to look at. I think it is important. So no matter whatever your thoughts are on eating meat or whatever, like some just that's not cool to treat animals the way that they are treated in in uh, this video and it's happening. So we thank you, Amanda, for sharing that with us. And I do, I just want to make kind of a general comment. A lot of the time we're talking about being scared of things on the show. I don't like to act tough. I, I like to be scared. And so I'm oftentimes goofing a little bit because I want to get into that silly mindset of things being scary. And it's fun to talk about how pigs are scary to us. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just the fact of the matter that that, that can be the case. And, I'm looking for reasons to be scared on the show. Yeah. If we're talking about real life violence, humans are probably the scariest of the beasts in a lot of ways. That's absolutely true. But just know that when we talk about the stuff, it's not done with malice. It's not done to certainly not to advocate for violence against these animals in any way. It's, it's, we're just kind of having fun. We're We're goofing around. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's all I wanted to say. Okay. All right, so that's uh, the pig-headed horror feedback. D- Dave, did you have anything, final thoughts on that, or should we move on to some no. winners? I don't know. Do we do we really want to put uh, pig-headed horror in the rearview mirror at this point? <laughs> I guess maybe we should, yeah. Okay, well, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, uh, it's probably not going away permanently. Uh, in, in, in as much as I can find pig-headed horror films to watch, I will. You know I will. Okay. I tried to cover every base on this recap that I could find, but I missed even a lot of the great comments from our listeners. So yes, there's a lot of pig headed horror out there to discuss (laughs) if you want to. Yes. All right. So that's your thing. (laughs) (laughs) We we've got some uh, Blu-ray winners, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we said that we would do a drawing from our iTunes reviews to give away two Blu-rays that were donated by Shane the Maniac Cop. And he gave us a Blu-ray for Get Out. And he gave us a 40th anniversary Blu-ray for um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. So we asked people to leave us reviews if they could. Preferably a five-star review. We ask all, all of you guys to do that. It helps us out a lot. It really um, helps our visibility on iTunes. And um, we said we'd draw some winners from that. So let's see. In in the time since we announced that, it looks like we've had just a handful of new mm-hmm. reviews. So your chances were really good of winning here. Yeah. Let's just randomly pick two here. I'm going to close my eyes and spin the wheel. Okay. <laughs> Grave Robert. Oh, cool. Good name, too, by the way. So, Grave Robert, and he was actually one of the people who um, tweeted you a Miss Piggy image. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. In the dark. Thank you. But Grave Robert gives us a five-star review. Thank you. And he says, have set the bar for what any horror movie podcast should aspire to be. In-depth horror movie reviews from very knowledgeable hosts. Give them a listen. Thank you, Robert. You are the winner of the Get Out Blu-ray. So get Jay your address, and we will get that shipped out to you. Just send us your mailing address to horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. And and Jay, I can ship those if you want. And then let's pick one more. Mm -hmm. This is from Joe Brunette, who's a longtime listener of the show. So thank you, Joe. Nice. Uh, it took you this long, Joe, to write a review. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> J- 
Joe gives us a five-star review. He says, five stars isn't high enough. I've been a listener since the very beginning and have enjoyed every second of this podcast. It's refreshing to be involved in a community where people share the same interests. There's so much more to horror than people realize. And these guys do an amazing job making sure those details are covered. Something I really like about HMP is their commitment to interact with the listeners. They never fail to include comments, tweets, emails, etc. Wow. from listeners. It's comforting to know that they take our opinions seriously and will genuinely hear us out. Being a filmmaker and an aspiring horror filmmaker, every episode leaves me with more inspiration. Can't thank them enough for that. HMP is honestly the best podcast out there, not because I'm biased to horror films, but because of the incredible host, the level of appreciation they provide. There's no escape. You're welcome, Jay, from this podcast <laughs> now, and I love it. This is something I'll always look forward to and will continue to spread the word about. Keep it up, guys. Joe Brunette. So thank you so wow. much, Joe. Awesome. And again, been with us since the beginning what 2013 Mm -hmm. and it took until april 23rd 2018 (laughs) to write a review joe (laughs) do we really want to give you a texas chainsaw massacre 40th anniversary blu-ray yes i guess we do yes we do yeah so yeah just just send me your addresses to uh, horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com and we're so grateful for that and then, um, and don't forget, right? We we still have that "I Am Not Your Final Girl" book come coming up, right? So they can- so for our female listeners who are on Twitter, just simply retweet the post about "I Am Not Your Final Girl" from this week, and you will be entered in the drawing for one book mm-hmm. by Clarcy Holland. So, Doctor Shock, Dave Becker. Yeah. This this very next episode coming up, episode one forty six. It is your theme. It is your turn to pick lamb-headed horror. <laughs> just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> What's I was your... trying to think of a headed horror that I could... I, I, could, I, I was, I was horse-headed horror. I didn't know what I was left, but... <laughs> so what do you, what, tell us what you're covering so we can get ready. The uh, theme that I've chosen is the Gates of Hell trilogy. Uh, Lucio Fulci's... Um, well, I guess it's an official trilogy. Uh, the movies are The City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and House by the Cemetery. Love it. I'm looking forward to that. I'm really excited, and I will do my homework, Dave, so don't worry. I'll be ready for that. All right. So people should be able to catch up with this and prepare for our reviews, because we'll we'll probably be going pretty in-depth, right, Dave? I mean, we're, we're going to yeah. be doing in-depth reviews. That's and- the plan, yeah. Okay. That's the plan into, into all the, those movies. You got it. All right. And and on a personal note, just real quick, last thing I just want to say, I wanted to give a, this will sound weird to you people, but, um, you know, the horror community is very good hearted, I think. And I just want to give a shout out and condolences to horror film critic Scott E. Weinberg for the loss of Jones, his cat. Uh, this guy loves that cat. Alien is his favorite horror movie. And he named his cat Jones after the cat in Alien. And the reason why that matters to me is because, number one, I'm a cat lover. And and I heard a podcast with him once. He did, like, this impromptu, his top ten horror films of, like, I don't know, it was, like, 2012 or 2013. It was a few years ago. And he did it, like, four in the morning. He was still up. And his cat, Jones, kept interfering in that recording and I just loved it it was one of my favorite podcast recordings ever and it was great anyway that cat died uh, this past week and he was devastated and so just want to give a shout out 
that sucks when they die. So, anyways. Yeah. Well, on that note, we had we have listeners in Toronto and Nashville and places where there were other tragedies in the last week or so. Um, shout out to my friends in Hawaii and Fiji who have had floods and cyclones as well. So there's a lot of real life horror happening out there. We hope everybody's doing well. Stay safe out there. Mm-hmm. Also wanted to give one shout out to Pastor Matt, who was another person who left some great comments that I didn't quite get around to mentioning on the show, but Matt sent us an awesome photograph. Matt is an actual pastor in real life <laughs> and he sent us a photograph of him preaching on stage at church in his horror movie podcast t-shirt. Wow, that nice. is freaking amazing. And awesome. yeah. <laughs> Matt says, preaching in my HMP shirt. Yes, I'm a pastor and a horror movie fan. Deal with it. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty awesome. Matt, I I wanted to say to Pastor Matt because um I, I was I was laughing to myself because you know I, I've shared in the past it's like you know I am a um, a believer you know I'm a religious person and there is a part of me you know that that feels conflicted sometimes with the way I study horror films but I I ultimately come down on you know this is a a good versus evil kind of genre anyway and that's what it's about you know like to me anyways I won't go into that that's for another time but I've always wondered it's like I wonder if I'm gonna have repercussions one day for um you know promoting all of uh these horror films and so forth and so pastor matt if i do end up in hell someday it will be because you were wearing a horror movie podcast t-shirt while you were preaching <laughs> so thank you but uh anyway that was amazing and we appreciate I mean, that he's, support. he's literally he's literally wearing it in front of a giant <laughs> sign that says defending the faith a series on apologetics and he's wearing the hmp shirt do you, <laughs> amazing do you it's think so funny i love it do That's you think great. he would sue us if we put that in the show notes i, I would love to like post that picture and show it oh, i don't think so okay it's all good. All right. Let's you can it. follow Matt at Pastor Matt R on Twitter if, if you're so inclined as well, where he's yeah. posted that photograph. That's nice. amazing. All right, guys. Well, that's it for episode 145 of Horror Movie Podcast. I hope everybody enjoyed this Frankensteinian episode. Next time we'll be doing Dr. Shock's theme. Looking forward to it. And Dr. Shock, let the listeners know where else they can catch up with your work on the internet. All right. Check out uh, DVDinfatuation.com. By the time this episode goes up, I will have one more movie to go. Ooh. Um, (laughs) And the plan is... The plan is to have it all done by uh, the afternoon of May 1st is when I'm planning to post number 2500. That will uh, wrap up the challenge. So... um, Mm-hmm. Kind of looking forward to that. Uh, I, you can also check me out on Twitter at DVD Infatuation. Uh, I have face. I'm on Facebook and Instagram as well, uh, and I do have other podcasts. I do the We Deal and Let podcast, the uh, Universal Monsters cast. Um, you could check those out also. Okay, it sounds oh, good. And what about you, Wolfman Josh? Um, I just wanted to quickly mention two things I forgot to say on the show. One was in regard to the Suspiria remake. They showed footage from that as well at CinemaCon, and people said it was disturbing and difficult to watch. And um, 
Dakota Johnson, who is one of the stars and is the star of Fifty Shades of Grey. She says the intensity of the Suspiria remake sent her to therapy. So that was good. That's a good sign, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Sounds like it. Sounds good. And um, that's basically it. I I had a, just those little things that I had wanted to mention during the show. Um, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Icarus Arts. And uh, that's about it. Okay, that sounds good. And as for me, I, I finally did get up a new episode of Considering the Cinema. And it was uh, about Ephraim Katz and the film encyclopedia. So if you want some great movie-related book recommendations, I don't think I put any horror books in this particular one, but still, um, you know, uh, it's it's good for that. If that doesn't interest you at all, it would be very boring. So don't listen to it. <laughs> but what's not boring is moviepodcastweekly.com. That's an insane show. We're getting ready to review a Avengers Infinity War that'll be pretty epic and you also get our summer movie preview for all genres that are coming out this summer so uh, check us out there and you know what guys um, I don't know if you saw this I did not see it when it happened at the time I think it was around the Halloween season but this is cool Cosmopolitan of all places named horror movie podcast as one of 12 creepy podcasts to send shivers down your spine yes and uh, that's really weird and cool um nice a lot of the podcasts are like real horror stories or kind of spooky stories uh the no sleep podcast is on there the other stories podcast um alice isn't dead that was like a fictional narrative kind of podcast and then lore which jay i know you're a fan of lore Mm -hmm. that came in at number 10 Horror movie podcast came at number eight. So just saying. Just saying. <laughs> there you go. No, War's got an HBO show. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Somebody, somebody give us a call. We're available. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, right. That's right. I hope you can tell we love your comments. So we'd love for you to get involved in the horror movie podcast community. If you're not already, keep those coming. You can leave a comment in the show notes or email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. Or just call and leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789. We have been getting some voicemails, and so we're going to get those um, played here on the show coming up, and I'm really excited about that. You can find all our episodes of Horror Movie Podcast, as well as the weekly Horror Movie Podcast and Horror Metropolis. That's three different shows. You can find all of those on our website, horrormoviepodcast.com. You can subscribe free in iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast. We're also on Instagram. And I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for this theme song for this show. And we want to... um, I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. And we'd also like to thank Mr. Kagan Breitenbach for his classical reworking and orchestration of Fred's original theme. You can find more of Kagan's work at kaganbreitenbach.com. We'll have those linked in the show notes for this episode. And I think that's it for episode 145. We thank you for listening and join us again Friday after next for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. My least favorite thing about the last episode 
was actually not the pig-headed whore, but Jay's continued reference to those we do not speak of on his chest. And I was, I was really disturbed to see that you got a lot of support there too. People wanted to hear a lot more about your nipples. And I'm just like, no, 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 no. Do that for considering the cinema. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Save that for that. That's perfect for that. Yeah. So a little bit ago when we were talking about like who loves the village more, um, I was I was gonna no, no, <laughs> no wait wait no. I was gonna ask do you lick your village DVD because uh, I do like I just love it I kiss it and caress it anyways oh come on man there are, yeah I love right. it. I actually I honestly did not think that's another thing like I did not <laughs> think that would make the episode and when I saw the first comment about it pop up I thought are you kidding me that's in the episode. <laughs> Oh, well, I kept it in there. Well, I um, you know, it was a callback running joke, so you didn't think I'd put like three three purposeful edits in there for myself, right? Like, I did. I didn't think it was going to be in there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was really surprised that it made the cut. But um, you know what? It does remind me of with the licking um <laughs> of William Rowan Jr. Our good friend has a rating where he calls it keep it under your pillow and give it secret kisses. I think that (laughs) that's kind of, that's about as far as I can go. I think that's that's where I draw the line. I love when he says that. That's great. Well, I'm I'm questioning my actual DVD infatuation now because I've never kissed any (laughs) of my DVDs. You're kidding. Oh yeah. You got, you got to sometimes, sometimes they need some love. 